0: Hello and welcome to episode thirty-nine of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster, and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram and Wayne Martin Belger. Hello, Andrew. Hi, Simon. Hello, Wayne. Hello. I'm sorry if was that was kind of a low. Was that was that, Andrew? Hi, Simon. Well, it's just my, you know, I haven't been, I haven't been put off by one of your introductions for about twenty shows. So I've done I'll, done quite I'll, well.
1: I'll I try and think of a different ways of saying hello to you that might have been my slightly camp hello <laughs>
0: <laughs> it was it was it was a side we've not heard before um okay so, um right now before we get going i just want to say uh, thank you uh, to eric Mathy, um who's been who starred with us for the last two shows um and eric will be joining us later because anybody who listened to the last show would have heard um eric read our
2: emails out with panache and aplomb <laughs> um panache <laughs>
3: panache, panache.
2: <laughs> a plume those are those are words usually not apply to me but thank you you're you're a gentleman say
3: about later yeah yeah and, yeah sorry sorry uh,
2: so there's a
0: possibility Eric might make a surprise <laughs> appearance later
2: yeah uh, don't tell anybody
0: no no <laughs> so uh you wouldn't believe we've actually been talking for about three quarters of an hour already, have you? But um, there you go. Let's um, let's let's back onto the uh, the tried and tested formula, which we're going to cr- try and keep quite tight this week. Um, with the, at least for the parts for Andrew and I. So, uh, Andrew, what's been happening mm. in the Fens? Um, in preparation for my semi-retirement, I launched
1: Fenland Camera and Darkroom, which so I'll be doing some workshops next year, and I've taken my first booking for May. And a lady has requested a Christmas voucher for a day's workshop. So, and she's paid me for that already. So, wow. that's good, isn't it?
0: It is. That's excellent. Yeah.
1: Congratulations. And I got all my. I got all my prints. Thank you, whoever that was. Um, there's so many people on this podcast now. I don't know who's who. I, I know there's two Brits and two Americans. So I, I sold my prints. Those 20 limited edition lith prints. They all went. Got those done and sent out. And <laughs> feedback's good. And sometime earlier the next year, I'll do another. Uh, another run of 20 on the next one so that's it I've been busy thinking about um, when I stop full-time work at the end of the year and how I'm going to fill my time
0: have you have you worked out how much you're going to charge for the next 20 because we we all pretty much decided that they were woefully underpriced well um, yeah it's interesting
1: isn't it they they probably are really I, I, I wanted to present something which was lovely to hold and look at, so I wanted it done really well. So, you know, the, the lith prints themselves are quite small, so that's one thing in terms of cost of paper. If we're looking at just cost, and I bought these artist kits, which were cut out, pre-cut window mounts, four inches by four inches, with an outer outer measurement of eight by eight, and they come they come with a backing board and one of little. Um, Pla- uh, pla- they're not plastic, is it? You know the little uh, envelopes that you put things in. They fits very tightly around the, around your artwork, so it, they, they look they look great. And for each one of those, I've, what I haven't costed in there is is any of my time, you know. And I have put a minor amount in there for chemicals and stuff because it's really hard to calculate. But I, I reckon, you know, I was I was selling those for eight eight pounds, delivered to the UK. And I reckon for every print I made, probably made about three pound fifty. And to be honest, Simon, that that paid for forty sheets of fibre paper, some little business cards to be made, some more mounts I bought, and some chemicals. Now it comes back to that conversation: How do you price yourself? And so, if I'd have charged twenty-five quid for one of those prints, would I have? Would Would twenty people be holding them in their hands now? I I I don't know. You know. I don't know. I was very pleased to get them out there, and I'm pleased with the feedback. And and it is what it is. But I think the next ones will probably go um, instead of eight pounds, they might be ten. Does that please you?
0: Well, it's certainly a step in the right direction. Definitely. <laughs> I mean, Wayne, Wayne. I mean, do you have uh, thoughts on how uh, how an artist should uh, surprise surprises should price his work or her work?
3: Uh, I mean, that's actually one of the most, like, difficult questions. I mean, because it's, I mean, I think about, like, stuff 20, I've been doing this for 23 years full-time now. And, you know, my very first prints, I think, were, like, 50 bucks. Um, But, you know, as my work became more and more known, you know, prices went up until, like, kind of other institutions kind of took control of all of the pricing. I mean, it's, 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 it's hard. Like my girlfriend, um, she just had the biggest sale ever, and she actually talked to an advisor, an art advisor, about pricing. And he looked at her work and was going over the work. He said, y- "Your price point is way, way low. You need to bring it up." And you know, her first thought was like, "I, I can't charge that much for a print." And um, you know, and then she sold one like two days later for, I mean, a good amount of money. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's weird. I even had an, I I even had an exhibition in um, San Francisco. Um, God, this is like in 2009 maybe or something. And the, uh, one of the curators came in from the rebel collection in, in Florida and they were—they liked the piece. It was the skull camera, and with all the photos, you know. And they—the price was eighty thousand dollars for the piece. And uh, the, they came in and they looked at it, and they're like, "This is," you know. They really were interested in it, and they asked for a price, and they said, "Oh, okay, you know, we're we're going to pass today." And then the curator or the owner of the gallery said if I put another zero at the end, would you have bought it? And she said, probably. So hmm. sometimes having the value, you know, up there really seems to sell it. Yeah. Um, but it's, I mean, God, it would have been 800 grand. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, but, you know, she wouldn't add on another zero really quickly. But um yeah, you know, so it, it, it it's difficult. It's really, really hard to say. A lot of it is like, you know, if people are really liking the work, it's getting out there and you know, you could charge more. But I think, um Yeah.
0: I, I think a lot of it, it's it's gonna be down to your your personal circumstances at, at at the time of where you are in your, your, your career, if you like. Because yeah. I I suspect that if you um have sufficient funds to to, to pay the bills, and you you're hmm. comfortable in some way uh, shall we say that you don't need to sell a photograph or something to 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 put food on the table then you can take a different attitude towards where you you position your art i guess well
1: as as it was started off with me talking about this so my, my our situation julie and i's situation come come january the first is that when we um, you know pretty much when we pay all our bills and honor our charity giving, which we want to keep doing because we think it's wrong to stop that. Um, You know, and we paid shit like council tax and, you know, stuff for the local government to empty your bins and all that nonsense. Um, I think we've got about 80 pounds left. That's um, so we're pretty close to that. um, You know, that point, there's not much we can, we can cut back on. Um, Yeah. So, I said, I can feed us on £80. No, you you just have to make your clothes last a bit longer. (laughs) We've got lentils in the fridge and, you know, Stockwell's value Weetabix and nonsense like that, you know. We'll be fine. So we're, um, to be fair, you know, I, I was very pleased that people bought some prints and with the money I generated, I was able to reinvest into materials. Because I wanted to see, I wanted to test the water to see if that was a model that would work. You know, some people, yeah. some people said, "Well, that's not." You know, you're selling these things way too cheaply. And I said, and I said "Well, maybe," but I'm still making thirty or forty percent profit on it. You know, but again, not counting my time, because at the moment I don't really need to count my time. I'd be making these prints anyway for the love of it. The workshops yeah. I'm start. Yeah. The workshops I'm starting to do. Simon, you know, know, I've been doing this for 30-odd years, printing and making analogue photographs. All that knowledge and and experience I just share anyway. I would do, and I do. Mm. But, you know, so if I'm going to offer workshops, I, I know people tell me, well, you should charge £150 a day, and I know that. I know, you know, because people who do that, you know, kind of for a living um although i think even with those people it's not their only source of income but they don't always say that um you know so if i charge 50 pounds for the for someone to come and spend the day with me it's i'm honored that they want to come and spend some time with me and i get loads of fun out of it because i can you know i've got one lady who said look you know i've got very limited mobility um i've got a lot of money but I'll, I'll happily pay you 50 pounds. Can you teach me how to develop film and show me some basic darkroom stuff? And if you can take me into the Fens and do some photography, that would be brilliant, you know? And so, you know, there's, there's a, there's a whole group of people out there who'd love to do workshops and, you know, even finding a spare 50 pounds, you know, let's call it $50 is hard for them. They haven't got it. All right. Yeah. Let alone 150, you know, so, you know, I'm I, I, I just, attacking a different end of the market and I think it's an untapped part of the market really because from what I can work out from the feedback I've had from the bookings I've already got you know well, the danger is that you know we want to go away in the caravan and do other stuff and I've got other other commitments outside of photography and I've got stuff to do around the house I've got 30 20 years worth of decorating in the house to do and you know bedroom <laughs> renovations and goodness knows what so I don't know it's it's and uh, and you know I love this stuff I love Going in the dark room. I love making prints. I love talking to people about it. This is why I do two podcasts. You know, I love all yeah. this stuff. And and yeah. if someone wants to, check, you put it me to spend a day with me. Well, that's I'm honoured, quite frankly.
2: Well, it, it seems to me, hey, it's Eric. Um, that Eric. you know, <laughs> hey, you <like>, Eric. <laughs> I, am, I am. And just briefly, like it seems to me, like there's like these things don't have to be an all or nothing proposition, right? Like, so you're saying that you love to interact with folks and like the woman who, um, has some problems with mobility Mm -hmm. for, for whom, you know, like 50, 50 pound is a big deal. And for you, the ability to engage with is a massive deal. Um, so there's, you should keep doing that and you should, I think, keep doing your workshops, uh, at low prices just to get people into photography who otherwise wouldn't be able to do it. Like that's, that's amazing. But at the same time, like when it comes to selling work and I think more to like what Wayne's point is there, it requires a certain amount of self-confidence that your work is worth Mm. something. And, and maybe you do some really top shelf, really, really amazing, like platinum prints and some really sexy, sexy prints that are like a limited, limited edition. You sell those for a hundred, two hundred pound, right? Mm. For the people who are up in that sort of more rarefied, i put that in air quotes, air, and then produce the other sort of normal RC prints for 10, 15, whatever, and test the waters that way, mm. right? So mm. if collectors can come to you and say, it's a beautiful print. I want an archival print I can put on my wall and say it's worth something. And there's something for them. And you don't have to feel like you're shutting off the, the lower cost prints for the people who couldn't afford an $800,000 piece. Right, um, but it does require the self confidence that yes, your work is good, and yes, by God, your work is worth that.
3: Yeah, which is also tremendously um, difficult.
2: Yeah.
3: Also, um, yeah, I mean, like, I usually don't calculate in my um like expenses. You know, it's like, what is it worth to me? Yeah, what is it worth? Yeah, you know, like, I'm creating something from within me. You know, and I'm putting it out there. You know, it's. I don't care how much I'll spend on something, you know, it's just like, what is it worth to me? And, you know, as far as my, you know, in the beginning of you figuring out cost of things and then things kind of got wild later on. But um, yeah, Um, you know, it's your passion. You're selling your passion and what you love and sell what's worth to you. And it is nice too. I do get like wanting people to have it in their hands especially, you know, people can't afford it. Um, one thing I've done, I've, like, I've probably given away too many prints (laughs) to people who like, uh, you know, want to do a barter or a trade or, uh, you know, different things just because I knew they didn't have the money. They really liked it. And we figured something out, you know,
0: but there's, there is something to be said about giving, giving things away. Although you've, you've mentioned barter there. So you're, it does value. Um, but somebody I I read it somewhere, or somebody t- told me once um, that it's it's better at times to actually give your t- give your time away, if it is away freely, than to than than to sell it cheaply, uh, because yeah. ultimately by selling discounting whatever it is that you're selling, whatever that whatever it is that you're selling, that then actually sets the value of your work or the value of your services and so yeah, yeah. It, which is why you know lawyers will do pro bono work and and, and so on but they're not going to do it for you know a, a just a small amount of money yeah they'll do it for a full amount or nothing and uh, and i think that's that's well, it that's depends, something it, Go on, Andrew. It, sorry
1: it depends on your audience because i you know I, w- one of the humbling things i've done in the past is um, before i took over running our local remembrance day poppy appeal like you don't have that in america do you poppy appeals anyway don't worry about yeah. it so uh, we, I, I would knock on the poorer parts of you know, the, the village I live in has got some very rich people and some very poor people in some pretty appalling accommodation. And I, and I knocked on those doors and I spoke to people and, and the lady said, well, yeah, I want a, I want a puppy. But I've, I've actually the only all I've got now is is 50 pence till I can till the pension comes out, you know, next day. And she said, "I'll give you that." And I said, "No, no, just have a puppy." She said, "No, I want to, I want to, I want to give you that." So, so to those people, yeah, you know, a fifty-pound workshop or a ten-pound print is a is a fifty-pound print to to you, Simon. You know, who's got loads of money. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so I don't know. I, I get all the points. I take all the points on on board. What I would say though is, when I sold these prints, I put you know the note, notes out on Twitter about these, um, the, these little series of prints I was doing called Relics and Memories. You know, Wayne, you'd love this stuff. So these are little images that I've found in my photography over the years that I suddenly realized I was drawn to this type of image. they little still life things. And so the first one is two forks, you know, dinner forks that I, I found in, in my wife's shed. She's the gardener. And they were just entwined together like two people in an embrace and they were in a, in a pot. And I photographed them with my Rolliflex. and so that became the first one. And um, huh. and so I, I put this tweet out. So I'm, I'm going to make these 15 prints, and if anyone's interested, I'm not going to sell them for a lot of money, you know. But if you think if you think they're worth more, so I did add this bit. Then please, that's up to you, you know. And to be honest, probably 70 percent, 75 percent of those 20 gave me at least £10, some people more. So that was kind of an interesting thing as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. You, yeah. you, anyway, what have you been up to, Simon? Uh, Well, I'm going to I'm, I'm, I'm <laughs> gonna cut, I'm gonna cut my section short because this is really interesting stuff. Um, um, and,
1: uh, we, we, the, we have kind of touched on it before, haven't we, yeah, but not but, in this much detail. We, and I've
0: We've delved into it a bit more this time. So mm. a couple of things come into my mind. Are you going to name and shame those people that didn't give you the extra money? Um, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the... Um, they uh, know who they are. <laughs> uh, and um, I, I've just, I've just got a business thought for you. Um, mm-hmm. And and that is you've, you've now done um, uh, your limit, your first limited run and it yep. was, and it was X per, per photo. Mm-hmm. Your, your next one is going to go up and, and it goes up in increments. And those yeah. people that, you know, this is a good opportunity to get an Andrew Bartram printed. It's a great price at this mm-hmm. moment because next time it's going to be more. So uh, get
3: in now. Exactly. By now. Yeah. By
0: now. <laughs> right. Okay. So um, that's that's uh, this this week's advice uh, for, for. Thank for... you, Eric, Dr. Eric and Dr. Wayne. That's, um, <laughs> yeah. um, checks and, in the post. <laughs> yeah. I'm um, not here. No. no <laughs> and to be fair, Eric, when you did come in earlier, it was it was towards a question. Um, You were answering the question. So um, that, that is why you're here. So uh, ask Eric, (laughs) just ask Eric. Yeah, we haven't quite got to that section yet. Um, And uh, okay, so uh, for myself very quickly uh, I've actually taken photographs which I'm really really pleased that I've actually been out and taken photographs um, members of the group in, on Facebook would have seen uh, that I'd mounted a Mamiya uh, press lens onto my Meridian 4x5 camera um, 102.8 lens and I managed to get a couple of shots um, of uh, people uh, which is good because I'm taking more people this year it seems and I was really really pleased with how that that worked uh, because it that 100 mil was more like a 35 millimeter lens by the time I got on to 4x5 um, it would vignette badly but I actually took uh, the photographs with a uh, against a black background and uh the my subjects were lit um to their torsos uh so uh the, you wouldn't know if there was any vignette in there or not to be fair um but that's a, that was a it was a it was a good exercise but shoot, you know shooting uh with a lens that fast and that wide uh, on large format
2: was was really really good so i enjoyed that um, could i could i ask did you shoot anything without the background or the, like what does the vignette actually look like is a vignette good attractive just i I, just, I don't know and i and i didn't uh um, you should i don't know <laughs> <laughs>
0: and one of the reasons for doing it initially was, "Oh, I want to see what the vignette 's like and then I, I did it, so it was impossible to see it um, but there you go that 's what that 's what next time is for isn 't it um, so uh, so so i en- enjoyed that and um, <laughs> last week at the six times dark because that was at the six times Darkroom club um, and then this latest uh, uh, this week at the six times Room club I, I I took another uh, couple of shots, but um, I went out. Uh, into the countryside um, this weekend and I took with me my MPP micropress and I met up uh, with two friends, uh, Ted Smith and uh, Mikel Teckle, um, who I've not been out with for a year. And, and I actually, I, I shot at Hasselblad uh, last time I was with them and I still have the film in the Hasselblad that I shot from the last time that I met them, um, which might say something there. Um, but I took uh, I took my large format camera, uh, a 1A large format camera, I took my micropress, um, and with the idea that I wanted to try and uh, isolate uh, some, use it almost like as a war crown camera and isolate some details, besides I got my Soviet 300mm uh, lens uh, put onto it, and um, I was all, all set, except the weather just wasn't there. The light was really, really poor, and there was just no way I could take photos. At, I think the minimum shutter speed at 30th of a second uh, with that, and that would be at like 4.5 on a 300 millimeter lens. So I knew I was going to have a, a, a narrow depth of field, but it got to the point where it was just impossible to, 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 to do that. And I, And I was there thinking, well, I can't take any photos. Um, this is, this is hopeless. I've, I've driven an hour and a half and I can't do anything. And, uh, Mikkel, um, just looked at me and, and and said, well, do long exposures and just use a lens cap. And it was like, oh yeah, yeah, of course I can. And uh, yeah, the, the lights came back on again and I, I had a good time and I, and I, I think I've taken some nice photographs, but it was, uh, it was, it's quite interesting because you, well, for me at least anyway, because I'm still relatively new to large format and it just did not occur to me that there was a different way to take photographs with a, with a large format camera.
1: Mm. And that picture you shared of the wet stick and the waterfall was lovely.
0: Yeah.
2: It was. was a wet stick. It was it, a lovely yes. study of a wet stick and a waterfall. That actually leads into a, a question I had for Wayne. I was thinking about Wayne. Uh, getting into this, hey man, because because yeah. Wayne, you don't have a formal photography background at all, nah. yeah, and at all. for you, a shutter is literally most of the time your hand or a black card. Like that's the shutter that you're used to. You do all pinholes, right? So yeah. when you yeah. hear, you know, just do long exposure with a lens cap. What do you think? Besides, that's what I always do. Like, oh, well, that's I, all
3: I know. You know, right. um, the only other camera I, I own that has um, a lens is my cell phone, um, even though I've been a photographer now for you know, 23 years. But it's so that's all I know. And it's actually when I you know, set up a photo shoot, I kind of see everything through pinhole. So, you know, when you're talking, you're, you know, 105 millimeter, I'm like, I have no clue that even though I know my focal lengths, my apertures, you know, everything I make into the camera, I design the camera for a certain look on, yeah you know, that'll be on the film. But yeah, um, as far as lenses, I have no clue. Does that answer your question, Eric? Eric,
2: right, right, come back. Sorry, there. sorry. I had to unmute myself. Um, yeah, it does. But I just, like, I think that's a, a really fun topic of conversation, um, for the three of you, since I'm just a hangers on until the email part, you know, <laughs> just, the, 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 like pinholes, like this large format, but pinholes is a whole separate beast. It's a whole different way of thinking and executing images and visualizing images. That's just both, um, more difficult and easier to do than what we would consider like like I'm um, like air quote, air quote, like standard, like large format photography with a a four by five and a shutter and, <clears throat> and lens movements and all that sort of stuff. Um, so I think I think that's a really interesting topic for for us to explore, right? And and what that does for your creative process. So mm-hmm.
3: Yeah, I mean, for me, it, like I said, it, I, I mean, I was showing in galleries before I got into photography as far as my assemblage work. And I used to show my paintings and um, assemblage work. And then a buddy of mine was, um, he was a photographer. Uh, he had an amazing studio in Long Beach where you could drive an 18-wheeler semi-truck into it in front of a psych. You know, and he used to shoot um, all the brochures for Mercedes and... And Nissan, just this amazing studio, and he was making a pinhole camera for a special feel for a Mercedes ad. And he made one out of foam core, and it really kind of sucked. I mean, it was just you know, it was was, wasn't stable at all. And he had to tape the film in, and it was just a pain in the ass. So I machined him, you know, a camera out of uh, aircraft aluminum because I was working as a machinist at the time. And, um, i created this camera. I ended up, uh, borrowing it back from him, trying it out, fell in love with photography. And that was my photography training. Yeah, you know, it was just trying to figure out how this thing works. And then he, um, let me borrow some, uh, darkroom equipment. And then, so I kind of figured out on my own, this is, this is early days of internet even, you know, so there wasn't even a lot of information out there. But so I kind of came up with all my own stuff because I'm just kind of a fanatic about engineering and figuring out, and I love math, and kind of came up with this whole thing that's now my career for 23 years.
1: And of course, these days you, you mentioned the internet, uh, er, uh Wayne. Sorry, <laughs> one of you mentioned the internet, Wayne. Um, if you want to make a pinhole camera now and probably 50% of my image making is with pinhole cameras, both ones I buy and ones I make, um, you can go and type in something like Mr. Pinhole and you go to his website and then you say, well, okay, I've got, uh, I want to have an image circle of so big and I've got a box that's so deep, you know, what size, what's the optimum pinhole? Because for every Focal length. I'm waving my fingers around like air quotes now because you know what? What do we call it? But focal length is fine. Pinhole aficionado and the the late Eric Renner used focal length when he described the distance between the pin and the film plane. So that's yeah. good enough. It's good enough. Then you you just get the optimum size. So you know then uh, so the, all the math you don't have to do. So you know to do all that before. Um, before uh, before the internet, you know, was uh, was, was wonderful. But pinhole yeah. is just is just the way to go, and it's it's the most simple form of, I was out um, last weekend with two coffee cans, with point three of a mil pinhole in them that I made with a fine drill and some sandpaper and some brass shim and some paper yeah. wedged in there, you know. And it's just about as pure as as it gets.
3: And you know, another thing that's it's popped up. And especially when I go into you know, different places and I want to photograph people and connect with people, people are so fascinated that an itty bitty hole <laughs> is there and they become more engaged with the camera, become more engaged with the subject in the whole story and want to know about it. And then ultimately want to be involved because it has this little hole and they're fascinated by how that works. And so, I mean, it's like, and I've seen like being in like um the like the refugee camps of Lesbos or or Syria or Gaza or wherever I've been with his cameras, I've seen other photographers come in, and people shy away. Mm-hmm. You know, they'll see you know the big lens there, and people go the other direction. I actually had one Syrian refugee tell me um, he's actually uh, in the Us and Them project, the uh, one of the the uh, portraits I did. He told me, he said, he goes, and this is, he just crossed the Aegean Sea from Turkey to Lesbos, and it was that morning that I ran into him, and I started hanging out with him and getting to know him. He told me that whenever he sees anybody with a gun or a camera, he considers them a terrorist because they are there to just take. And he saw my camera. Was intrigued by it. Couldn't believe that an image could be made, you know, through that hole. And what I do too is I take Polaroid because my cameras will take Polaroid backs, and I give the person I photograph a Polaroid, and you know, so they're amazed that an image could be made through that little hole. But um, yeah, extra benefit of having a pinhole camera. People like it.
1: Yeah, and if your pinhole camera is you know, a tin can, then it's a talking point in the same way as if your camera is a skull or you know something made out of crucifixes or body parts
3: yeah i i had a i had a photo shoot in um new york um i was doing with a skull camera that got a lot of attention in central park i mean when you have a human head on a tripod you know it's um you do get some attention i had a cop come over and he's like you can't have that here and he just give me a bunch of shit about it and and so, you know, kind of backed out of that. And I didn't have permits or anything. Actually, I I, with uh, I have another, I have two human skull cameras. One's called the um, third eye camera, where light comes through the third eye of the skull. That's where the pinhole is and creates an image on you know, on the 4x5 film inside the skull. But I have another camera called Yama that is a, just a ton of metalwork on it. It's a pneumatic camera, too, so you, it has an air tank where you hit a switch and the skull separates and you put the four by five film in and then hit the switch again and it closes around the film. But I, um, it's a stereo camera through the eyes Hmm. of a 500 year old Tibetan monk skull. And the divider goes down the middle of the skull. So it creates two side by side images through the eyes of the skull on one sheet of four by five film to create a stereo image. But I was doing a photo shoot in Montreal with that camera. And I was, um, with that camera, I I set up photo shoots that studied the mythology of um, deities and icons, and I do what I think a modern incarnation of that icon or deity would look like today. So I was doing a photo of uh, Saint Marguerite Bourgeois in the middle of, she's a patron saint of Montreal, in the middle of a street of Montreal, and these two they're also in a huge crowd forms because you know again i got a human head on a tripod and two cops show up and they said you know what are you doing and i said uh i'm sorry i'm just doing a photo shoot real quick and they said with that and i said yeah he said is that real and i said yeah i said is that okay he's like oh yeah is it okay if we watch and I was like, hell yeah, you know. It was just so different. But um, I forgot my point. I just started ranting. I had too much coffee this morning.
0: <laughs> I wouldn't. I wouldn't worry too much about that. And and I think Andrew, this might be a good point to introduce our star guest this week. Oh, you mean we're actually going to introduce him? I think it's oh, about
1: time. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs>
0: no, 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 not at all. It's um, yeah. Let's 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 uh, go to that section of the show because I think that's a good time to do it. Okay.
1: Well, this week, if you hadn't realised already, we've got uh, following on neatly from Eric, the two Eric show. If you recall, listeners to the last show or the last two shows, when Eric got to the end of his mail trail bike ride, he ended up at the uh, what I now understand is a converted nineteen forties diaper washing factory. Okay, nappies for yeah. the UK listeners in the dusty border town of Tucson, oh, Arizona. So that's where um, Eric ended up, at the uh, studio and house, I guess, of Wayne Martin Belger. And apparently, so his website says, Wayne is a student of linguistics, well, I'd believe that, and comparative religion, wow, Uh, followed, and he followed a path to investigate the roots of beliefs, passion, and truth, as told through alternative and historic forms of communication. So... Wayne, you build lots of cameras, you get, as if people haven't realized already, deeply, deeply, deeply involved in these projects, so much so that you're creating cameras from objects that have some direct connection with that subject, and you're engaging with your subject in a way that perhaps isn't, isn't so easy to do, as you hinted at with Lesbos, with a lens camera. So welcome to the show Wayne Thank you and, uh, thank It's lo- really, really lovely to have you here we're um you know we're, we've we've had nearly forty shows and some just wonderful wonderful guests and and there you are right in there amongst them so
3: well, I love your show and thanks for having me
1: you're very welcome thank you so what, I'd love to just hear you've told a little bit about how you got into all this, but um, you know there's got to be a bit more of a story there as to how you came to make these wonderful cameras and how you got into these various projects. So maybe just spend a few minutes just telling us about that.
3: Yeah, it was in the uh, late Um, nineties. I told the story about my buddy who is a Mm. car photographer and, you know, so I made him a camera, but I was working as a machinist then. And I come from a long line of machinists and engineers. Um, Like my grandfather, he, um, which I'm going to be doing a whole project about him. It's going to be a new project. But um, my grandfather was an engineer, aeronautical engineer. Um, he graduated from Caltech and MIT, which, brainy dude. He um, was working, his main um, place he used to work was Edwards Air Force Base for General Electric. And he invented the gas turbine engine in the 30s. And um, and he just had all these like wonderful stories growing up about uh, Chuck Yeager, who Chuck Yeager used to be one of my grandfather's pilots. Um, He's talking about him and Chuck and my grandmother getting drunk and then, you know, almost like passing out. So they'd stagger over to the planes and sit in the planes and put on oxygen masks to get rid of their hangovers. And it's just all kinds of kind of wild stuff out in the desert there. So I really just, you know, admired my grandfather and my dad. He had a degree in aeronautical engineering. And so I kind of followed that path. Um, you know, in college, like I said, I studied linguistics and comparative religion, so I got a little bit more involved in um, uh, Carl Jung and Joseph Campbell, and and um, yeah, kind of followed that path for a bit. But then to make money, I got into machining, and I was trained as a fine machinist or a conventional machinist that isn't CNC or computer. So, it's like the old school turning cranks, you know, where you got to know your speeds, your feeds, um, you got to smell the coolant, you got to just all these techniques on actually working with different metals and to, you know, create different shapes and forms with um, like aircraft aluminum and titanium and all these different alloys. So, I was, uh, like I said, I was. uh, working as a machinist when that buddy of mine, um, was using that stupid foam. I shouldn't say stupid. He might listen to this. It was a beautiful foam core camera, but you know, it didn't really work too well. And then, I uh, made him a camera, but what he didn't expect about the camera was, uh, when I gave it to him, it had a Pablo Neruda poem etched in the aluminum on the top of the camera. It had bees cause I was a beekeeper I had bees crawling in and out of keyholes on the sides of the camera and it had just all these like gears and different things on it just cuz uh when I was working as a machinist when I was training as a machinist my uh the lead man always trained me to make a tool as an extension of my body and an extension of me so if I was making a jig or a tool I would make it as an extension of me and it would also, uh, be made for the, uh, process that it needed to be made for. So I made that camera for my buddy, Brian and, and still doing the same thing. You know, I'm making a camera for me. That's part of me and part of the subject it's created for And Like we brought up earlier, I've never had any photography training or anything. So it just seemed like I was making a new tool. Does that make sense?
1: It certainly does, yeah. So at what point did you sort of bring this combination of being able to machine and make beautiful objects and kind of link it with a, with the cause, you know, because if you look at your website, you know, com, there's just, you know, a, a dozen or more sort of projects that look from maybe the last 20-odd years, you know. And so each one is... Is a, is a handcrafted camera. You've mentioned the Yama Tibetan skull, and I'm staring at a picture of that now, and it's the creepiest thing I've ever seen. I, I can it's see the It's not creepy. Well, it, okay. But I can see the eyes boring at me. I mean, it's, it's got eyeballs in. I'm sure they're not real eyeballs. But, so, when did you. When did, what was the first project, um, and how did you get into it? Uh,
3: the first project, well, there's a camera called Classic Camera, and I made that one. Because I made that, you know, the other camera was called the B camera, which is on the website. Uh, I made that for my buddy Brian, and he still owns it today. Classic camera was just from some parts I found, and the rest was all machined out of aircraft. And that was to really kind of learn and burn a bunch of film and see what it does. Also, um, uh, the Classic camera has a reversible. Um, uh, focal length so the front plate on the front uh, has the, there's these uh, four finger screws where you could flip around the front plate and make it super wide angle and then flip it around maybe you know, more telephoto and then there's a mid plate to make it like just in between the two <laughs> so I just did a lot of experimenting with that camera and then from there I got into um another camera called headlights which i found this old halogen bulb system so it was a camera that had its own self supporting lighting system because i wanted to see if i could do more stuff at night with pinhole but then the real like first like theme camera or a camera that was that i created um that had more of a direction was called dragonfly and and that goes you know back to my machining training where like I said, I was trained that this device I'm making needs to be part of me. And at that time, I had uh, just a lot going on with an organization I was also doing some side work for called Find the Children. I was working uh, for an organization, it's through the Justice Department, that does, uh, looks for missing and exploited children. And I was working a division that was mainly looking for kidnapped children through Southern California and Mexico. And I had gotten back a report that one child I looked for for about a year and a half was found dead um, not far from the house. And it just had a lot of impact on me. And I created this camera, the Dragonfly camera, as like a shrine or an altar to her. And that camera I just photographed the lives of children with. And so um, that was the very first um, camera that you know, had a theme kind of thing going on. And then, um, you know, after that I would create a camera for something I really wanted to learn about or study or some subject I wanted to dive into, you know, I would do tons of research first and then I'd start getting a feel of the project or what I wanted to learn and start gathering artifacts. And then I would make a camera for, for it and then dive into what I wanted to learn as far as a subject.
0: I, I just want to just drop in there. Anybody that's listening to this in front of a computer, um, <laughs> then head over to uh waynemartinbelger.com and uh, and just just scroll through um, if you've not been on wayne's site it's it, it, you're in for a treat um, because it, his cameras are extraordinary um, so uh so that's wayne martin com, and uh so i'm I'm sorry if you're listening to this in the car or something like that because you you really do need to check out uh wayne wayne cypress it's 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 just amazing there yeah the
1: the way wayne just sort of glibly almost casually talks about these cameras and glass i'm thinking well man that dragonfly camera is like it's it's like a, a proper work of art you know
3: well, thank you. it's but like i said you know at that time i wasn't even really thinking about galleries and stuff i mean that was in 99 i had my first show i think it was in 98
1: mm-hmm.
3: um, and that was an accident too because i was just using the camera and this uh, person i knew had a gallery in downtown los angeles and she's like would you mind if i show some of these cameras and the photos and i was like you know I didn't really, I was like, well, you can if you want to. You know, I just make them for me. You know, it's just my, you know, it's my way of connecting with something or subjects I want to get involved with. And then she did an exhibit, and then somebody from L.A. Times Magazine saw it and did a full write-up in L.A. Times Magazine on the uh, cameras. And then all of a sudden, you know, there was just a big big thing about it and i thought you know maybe i could you know do this as a career <laughs> later on and then it kind of took off
0: well be, but be, um, i was gonna say before we talk about more cameras I'm, I'm just thinking you you can't you couldn't have just just started to oh i'm gonna make cameras and then all of a sudden you're making extraordinary looking cameras and were you were you t- doing the other kind of artwork before you were working on cameras
3: yeah, I was doing installation art. Like I, I would have, um, and it becomes. I also have a very kind of interesting uh, religious background. You know, I was raised a good little Catholic boy in Los Angeles, but we also have um, a connection with Santeria and Voodoo in my family. And you know, I, you know, I, when I was younger, you know, we would go to church, and then later on there would be a Santeria ceremony. So I, there was always a lot of altars and shrines. Um, around you know my family at all times and then so I incorporated that into I started that became my art form was making shrines and altars to the point where I uh, different galleries around Day of the Dead you know Diles Muertos which is a big like celeb- celebration in Mexico they would have me come in and make these elaborate shrines and altars and different institutions would have me come in and make these altars and shrines. And that was before the cameras. And the cameras are kind of an extension of the altars and shrines. Like I said, the Dragonfly camera is dedicated to a girl named Courtney Clayton, you know, the little girl, nine-year-old girl who was killed in Texas. And so this is like an altar, a shrine to her. And I do the installations in museums. They're set up almost like a Catholic altar, actually. And what I saw in santori or voodoo altars and in catholic churches and that's the way the installations are where you have the camera is generally like the sacrament you have the godhead up above the camera down below the camera is like the anchoring point or the the altar stone and then the photos around are the saints and all the installations are set up that way so yeah the you know my early um my early experience with art, as far as installation work, definitely plays into the cameras. Yeah,
0: I and mean, I'm, I'm still on the uh, the dragonfly uh, camera page before you move on to uh, the, the the next one. But it, it, what you've just said there just makes so much more sense now. It, it, yeah, you, uh, so I, I don't know too much about the uh, the, the the voodoo um, uh, the, the side of things. And uh, and how it tied in with uh, Christianity and and so on. Although you, know, you 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 sometimes see a few things. And it's it always looks very dark and macabre, and um, and that's exactly what I am looking at here. Almost like look, the back of it looks like a it could be like a, a religious book. It could be a Bible, but why would it be so black and uh, have almost like scales on it and stuff like that? And it's uh, just incredible to look at.
3: Oh, did, wait, which what are you looking at? Dragonfly, uh, dragonfly. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, that, that the uh, photo, I think, that's on there is the for of the camera, and then there's a photo of the top of the camera. And on the top of the camera, there's actually a dragonfly on it with a, uh, a Christ figure. Yeah. That's actually the dragonfly around the time I was looking for Coralinean. And same thing with that little Christ figure. Yes. But, you know, it all comes together, and it all connects to... Um, the subject. Yeah,
1: there's a dragonfly morphing into a Christ figure on a crucifix and it, uh, well, I hadn't noticed it until you kind of until I've zoomed in on it
3: Yeah, and I like those little details you know, because I'm making it for me yeah, I'll spend a large amount of time on just the smallest details and actually a lot of the cameras even have things inside that I did that you can't even see but I know they're there and I, yeah, it's, I make them for me and uh, yeah
2: I mean, inside of one of the cameras that you showed me, there's literally a diorama inside of it. Like you look inside of the skull and there's a diorama inside of it that has nothing to do with the image and isn't recorded on the image. It's I'm sure on your website, there's some photos of that, but you know, Andrew and Simon, they're really, they're kind of ridiculously amazing to see in
3: person. Well, thank you. Um, the, uh, yeah, the, which one was... I um, oh, can't find it right I'm looking at my website. I believe too, that was the third eye. Which I think I may have changed the name on it. Where is... Have you called that the beauty of That's decay? Right. Is that the one?
2: No, the Yuma. Yeah. Darn. I think that might have been the Yuma. Dang, yeah, the yeah. one... Because It was the, looked at the back of a skull, and there's a diorama inside the skull to represent the things that you thought maybe the person that the skull belonged to saw.
3: Yeah, actually... I, I thought I had a photo of the, uh, I don't see it on here, but I had thought I had a photo of a, a camera shot from inside the back. Yeah, so inside the back of the skull, um, when I got the skull, it was actually inspired by a friend of mine who, was, who lived in England. And he had, uh, I was talking to him, and he was really religious, and I told him I had this idea of making a, a skull into a camera um, to study the beauty of decay. Yeah, because, you know, skull is the symbol of decay. And he, um, he got a little upset with me. And, you know, he's pretty hardcore born-again Christian. And he's like, you can't do that. That's sacrilegious. You would That's terrible. And we went around the cor- corner in a car, and there was a bunch of cow skulls being sold, you know, for decorations. He's like, oh, I want to get one of those. I was like, you know, what a separation from you know, the human skull is, you know, completely sacrilegious. That's a big no, no, You can't touch that. And then he goes and buys a cow skull to decorate his backyard. Yeah. You know, it just felt like such a separation from nature. So, you know, of course I wanted to get into making it. And then, um, he had a, he was kind enough to hook me up with a friend of his that was in England who his uncle or great uncle was becoming a doctor and had a box of bones in their attic. And at the turn of the century, to study medicine, you had to have a complete skeleton. But they didn't make plastic skeletons then. So he had his bone collection. That skull was part of the collection. I talked to him, and he said, yeah, sure, I'll send it to you. And sent it to my mom's house, told her not to open the box. And then um, got it and sat with it for about a month and just really connected with it before I started working on it. And then um, what what Eric was talking about is in the back of the skulls a diorama I made because when I cut the skull in half, I had a dream for three nights in a row that I was looking out a window from inside a house, and there was a sunrise with two trees outside the, uh, the window, and there was some toys on the ground, wood floor, and weird wallpapering so i built that entire scene that whole diorama into the back of the skull and then you look in a little peephole in the back of the skull and you push a button that's where the spine would be and it turns on the lights and you see the sunrise the trees and the inside of the room in the back of the skull
1: i don't know, don't know what to say really is, is that the um, <laughs> which skull is that is that oh, so i'm a bit confused you've got two skulls you've got beauty of decay yeah decay.
3: it's the beauty of decay Beauty of decay what we, project
1: what's called the third eye camera
3: yeah it's a third eye camera
1: okay yeah
3: gotcha yeah it's a third eye camera beauty decay project uh what i've been doing with this actually there's a new documentary about this camera and me using it um it it was going to do the, the, um, um, film fair circuit, the film, Mm. what do they call them? The big film things that they do like Sundance, festival, (laughs) film, festival, Festival, film festivals. Yeah. Couldn't think of the word festival. So it's going to do the whole circuit, but then due to COVID, it all got shut down. So next year it's booked at quite a few places, but it's this documentary about me going out on my Harley. And I go out to this place called, um, Uh, Wonder Valley out near Joshua Tree, California. Mm -hmm. And there's hundreds of abandoned homesteads all over the place out there. And the deal was like in the 50s and 60s, if you built a 12-foot by, I think it was 12-foot by 20-foot home, you got acres for free. So in the 50s and 60s, people went out there and they built these homes, these little micro homes. They would live in them for a while, but they didn't have electrical service most of the time. They didn't have plumbing at all. And yeah, you know, they would just abandon these places, but a lot of them were all completely abandoned with all their stuff in it. And you would go into these places and it would be like you're stepping back in time. Like part of the roof would be caved in. There's animals living in in chest drawers or in cabinets. And you would touch clothing in the closet and it would just kind of disintegrate. And I'm just kind of fascinated with um, the decay of them and how they're going back to the earth. And um, so I've been out there quite a bit. So the whole documentary is about that project. And actually on the website, the uh, Beauty Decay Project, there's a wall that was just in a museum in January that I built where it has the camera in the middle again. You know, it's the sacrament and the Christ figure. And then the, uh, the abandoned homesteads I photographed with the camera on the on
1: the uh, wall. So you've got a you've got a wealth of subject matter for that camera because you know I've had a few trips to the states and what struck me is because of the vastness of your country very often when things are abandoned they're just kind of left and people build stuff elsewhere in in the UK land is of such shortage that if you knock something down something new gets put up pretty
3: Pretty quickly. Pretty quickly. Yeah. 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 This. This. I think part of my fascination with this project too was just American greed. Oh, you know, do. and how people would just go out and build these things and then fill them with crap. I would go into some of these places. It was at least two feet deep of just crap on the floor that they filled it with, and then just leave it. Um, also, what was interesting too is I would document what I would find out there. And the number one thing I would find out there was bullet shells because people would just go shoot the houses too, you know, for the hell of it. Um, Number two was American flags. As far as, you know, the uh, consistency of finding certain items in different houses was American flags. Number three was Bibles and number four was porn. And in that order and just tons of it all over the place. And then what I do too is I'll um, grab a lot of those artifacts, which you can see on the website too, and I'll make frames out of the artifacts I find in the house and around the house. Um, I'll make that into the photograph. Um, I'll include all those artifacts in the frame around it. And also that in the the uh, installation museum installation, there's this painting of Jesus that I actually found in one of the abandoned homesteads. And that's right about the camera.
1: The the images on the page for Beauty of Decay are quite quite striking. And, you you know, you've got some words of context there, talking about, uh, you know, 50s and 60s, hundreds of people building these things in order to acquire the five acres of land for free. Well, what were they doing with the five acres of land? Because they're clearly not there now, are they?
3: They're American. It's free.
1: Right. So it's just that greed thing. It's just because they wanted to have it. They wanted to acquire it
3: yeah yeah and some of them are creepy as hell too man like you you go into them and just everything's still on the walls and and like there was one place there was a big lazy bore recliner in front of a desk and there was still bills from 1962 Mm
2: -hmm.
3: and there's like clocks you know just covered in dust and and then this one place i um was just digging around for artifacts and I moved this big piece of metal. You know, I thought I'd take it home because I like metal and I moved this big piece of metal and it was dark underneath. I found staircases going down about 25 feet. This is in the middle of just flat, nothing desert. And then you, it went down a little hallway that jogged to the left, right, and then left and opened up to a room with bunk beds With shelves full of beans and cans of soup and a little booklet on how to survive radiation poisoning, and it was somebody's uh, fallout shelter just sitting there, yeah, just um, yeah, this piece of history. But it was a little too dark to photograph in there.
2: Well, I was I was going to say just a a quick side point, um, having had some experience with the history of America and homesteading. You know, it's, it's not necessarily always, you know, just it's free and, and greed for, for some folks who go out to these places, the homestead, like something that to you and I and the two thousands who live in, you know, coastal cities or that sort of thing seems completely crazy. But, you know, there are a lot of folks who just want to have a piece of land they can call their own who don't really do well in cities or metropolitan areas and they, they don't identify with folks on the coasts. Let um, me see a lot of that with, you know, conservative voters you could say, or, or whatnot, but they just, you know, they don't want to have anything to do with it. So like a little squat in the middle of nowhere, sounds like heaven until you get to the actual harsh reality of being out there and trying to survive. And it's a whole different <laughs> ball of wax, right?
3: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a part of the greed part for me is the uh, just filled with so much shit.
2: Right. That's, I mean, consumerism is crazy.
3: Oh, the consumerism was incredible. Like, you know, you'll go into some of them. Like this one I went into, there was at least, God, I'd say at least like 10,000 videos, your know, old VHSs, and then like old broken VH, VHS machines, and just, you know, just piled and piled and piled of just stuff, you know, accumulating just stuff. It's just, you know, it, it, it's awkward and I, and I do get you. Know, a lot of people just want to get away and I do get that but I mean this was just one of the harshest environments I mean there's no trees no hills no nothing around most of the houses and then to not have electricity and to not have plumbing you know when you have a summer that's well over 100 degrees every single day for like two or three months Yeah, you know is but they got five acres of land
1: I mean, I'm looking at some of these photographs on that on that on that page of some of the these little shacks homesteads, they're not growing. They're not going to be growing much in that soil, are they? By the looks of it,
3: no, not at all. <laughs> no, you got to go shopping for food. Which uh, that was another thing. Is the only stores were a really good distance from there.
0: Hmm. So who who owns that land now then? Has it gone back over to the government or does actually somebody technically own that land? Is it still in private hands?
3: Um, A lot of – well, what's been interesting in the last like four or five years is there's been a lot of kind of um, hipsters from Los Angeles (laughs) paying the back taxes on the land and then they get it. So they pay the back property taxes and then you get the piece of land and – They've been building like little getaway places for the weekend. It's usually like really wealthy hipsters, and then they'll make it like you know they'll have little parties there and and stuff. There was a couple places that were um, little meth labs too that I found accidentally. <laughs> which is <laughs> one, one of them. Um, I was photographing a house and you, you see this like little house with a chain link fence going around the property with razor wire all at the top and then a whole bunch of blue barrels all over thrown all over the place it's like you kind of know what's going on there and there was this one time where there was a whole bunch of like lowrider cars just parked out there and then I saw them coming out when I was in the middle of a photo shoot of a homestead and they come over to me like what the hell are you doing here and I said uh I'm doing a photo shoot and, uh, yeah, the skull is on the can- on there, and he's like, with that? I mean, it was the same as the Montreal cops. You're yeah. photographing with that. All of a sudden, they're getting out. They're like, oh, that's cool, man. And all of a sudden, I became the buddies of a meth lab in the middle of the desert. <laughs> <laughs> it was an adventure. It always, it's always an adventure when you've got a, a camera that's a little bit different, as you guys know.
1: Oh, yeah. Wayne, how did you get into the HIV project? Well, I what I want to call Bloodworks—I think it's called Untouchable on here, but
3: um, yeah, by the way, um, that was yeah. another real personal project. Um, one of my best buddies—I've uh, been always been a rock climber and mountain climber—and and this buddy of mine who was a climber for a long time, um, David. He—we uh, went on a surf trip actually to Hawaii, and he. When we're out in the water, he goes, hey, Wayne, I want to let you know that in my bag on the beach, I have some rubber gloves in case, you know, I get hurt. Because we were surfing a reef that was really, had a reputation for just just messing people up. You know, it was, just had really sharp coral underneath, and it was kind of a dangerous place to surf. And I'm like, well, why? I go, you yeah, know, we've been climbing, a bled on me, and he found out I'm HIV positive. And, and he was a bit of a statistic because he's, he's, um, heterosexual. He lived in San Francisco and he got, um, HIV through heterosexual sex. And this is early on when it was still a death sentence. So he was telling me, you know, over time on how people basically shunned him in San Francisco, but there was a large HIV community in San Francisco but he started hanging out more with the HIV gay community, but they kind of shunned him too because he wasn't gay. So it was kind of the first feelings of that us and them, you know, that separation, you like dividing people into different categories. So I made a project to study that. Um, the blood in the camera is actually my buddy David's blood. And the camera has two cylinders on each side with a piston and a rare earth magnet where you pump the blood through the camera. It circulates through. And then it goes into um, the front of the camera, which has two pieces of acrylic that are five thousandths of an inch apart. It passes in front of the pinhole and that becomes my red filter for all the photographs. And then I, I travel with the camera to different places connect to different HIV groups and new portraits of people with um, HIV and AIDS all over the world with it. So everything is seen through the actual blood itself. It becomes, you know, my number 25 red filter, basically.
1: Yeah. I've, I've just, you might've heard my iPhone go. I just took a picture off the screen of your uh, camera just to probably share onto the uh, large format photography podcast, Facebook group. But this is, I mean, how do you even begin, I mean, p- putting aside, you know, the, the connection that you have with this project, with the, your friend's blood in there, I mean, how did you even begin to conceive such a camera for this project? Did, did you know it well, had to have blood in it?
3: Yeah, because, I mean, everybody with the HIV, in the HIV community, were seeing each other kind of through the eyes of HIV, yeah uh-huh. yeah it was it was their connection and so most people who kind who um like visualize in their mind somebody with hiv they kind of have a certain stereotype and so i wanted to create something where everybody saw through the blood of hiv yeah. but it was men women children grandparents babies um, i photographed probably about 80 or 90 people all over the place. I mean, mothers and daughters and mothers and sons that were both HIV positive. And so it kind of changes or shifts the perception in people's minds of what somebody with HIV actually looks like. And so that was the idea of the project. And yeah. Do you, I have to
2: ask, you know, because you have a a lot of different cameras, obviously works of functional works of art. Mm -hmm. Um, is there any point in time where one gets set aside more often? Cause you just said, I, you know, I've photographed, I still photograph. Do you still work with that camera? Do you still actively pull it out? Or like, you know, when you focus on another project like us and them or, uh, the beauty of decay, you know, is there ever a time when the camera gets set aside somewhat permanently and you focus on new work or are you always revisiting mm-hmm. projects?
3: It, it depends. It depends on what kind of comes up in my life. Um, you know, if, if, I had somebody approach me who's HIV positive and wanted to tell their story, you know, I'll request the camera back from, it's in the museum permanently right now, Um, I'll request the uh, camera back and I have a contract with my collectors and different museums I work with that they have to ship back the camera if I want to work on the project and they kind of like it because from now on they get the number two print for free um, if I use their camera. But yeah, so the, you know, different situations will pop up where it's like, it's time to use this project, you know, it's time to, you know, continue it. And that's why like, you know, the, the skull camera is a really early, early camera. And it's one of the main cameras I'm using right now. You're know, the first one, the, uh, the, uh, third eye camera. So yeah, they constantly rotate in and out. It depends on you know, what I'm feeling, what the situation is, and just pull out the right camera for the right project and, and the, you know and the and the installations keep on growing and the project keeps on growing and yeah
1: seems seems to me all of this was uh, as you as you got ahead of steam with these projects and you you know you're clearly a man with a with a social conscience who looks at the problems you know that are in America and uh, and you have a voice you know we've had people on this show Shane belcovich who was on a few shows back you know p- people with a voice and you're going to make yourself heard and this is the way you you way you make yourself heard and it, it seems to me that it was all heading this theme you one of your perhaps your later projects is the us and them project and really do, do you think that everything was kind of heading towards that you know that is us and them kind of summarizes what it is you're trying to expose within american society
3: yeah, I mean, and I didn't really get that at first. Even with the A- HIV project, you know, us and them's were upsetting, especially yeah. when I had like you know one of my good buddies who's HIV positive and he's being shunned by everybody basically, um, and I wanted to learn more about it and expose it. So then you know the like you said, the latest project or one of the latest projects is the us and them project, which completely, totally dives into us and them, you know, people that are put into that fictitious category of them by, you know, government or by, um, you know, somebody who has power to dehumanize and divide one group of people to make them lesser. So yeah, I've wanted to really um, explore that and go to, Different places where there is just a really, really evident us and them, and see what is the them? Why are they a them? And go and learn.
1: And have you uh, the the project? This is going to be a massive project. You've done some stuff in Palestine, by the did you? You're actually in Palestine to make some of these portraits.
3: Oh yeah, Um, there's two on the website. Um, there's a gentleman who um, yeah, just has a bunch of Arabic written over his face. And then a woman over uh, was the next photograph yep. um, who has yeah, there's some Arabic on it. And these portraits too, um, they're a little bit different. <laughs> they're 48 by 60 inch prints. And the prints are made of nine separate sheets of 16 by 20 gelatin silver paper. And so what I did is I made a huge easel that's bolted to my wall in my dark room. And it's out of 48 by 60 inch glass with a steel frame going around it with hinges on the bottom and latches at the top. And I'll pull down the, um, the glass flat, lay out the nine sheets of gelatin silver paper, tape it down, put foam core on the back, and then lift it back up on the wall. And then I have my, uh, I have a Bessler four by five and then I project that onto Mm. the... uh, And then I kind of mess with all my chemistry, so I tone a lot of the uh, nine sheets differently. And so, yeah, they all come out completely different from every other sheet of the nine sheets.
1: Yeah. Um, Are you familiar with the work of Heather O'Class? either of you guys? So Heather was on... um, I co-host another podcast, funnily enough, called the Lensless Podcast, Wayne, which is all ah. about pinhole photography. Mm-hmm. And um, she was on fairly early on, two or three years ago. And she she drives a yellow van called Little Miss Sunshine with a pinhole on the side of it. And she <laughs> has on on the other side of the on the wall facing the uh, pinhole is a, a matrix that she puts up of eight um, x ten um, resin coated paper, and she pulls up to what you know static subjects not not people generally um yeah. gas stations and whatever catches her eye and exposes directly onto the paper but she doesn't then make a positive out of that she has these exhibitions like yours with a matrix of these prints but they're all just make up one big negative image and your brain eventually starts just making it into a positive it's it's really interesting and she's lovely hmm. and uh check 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 her out because what's um, your last name again o class maybe heather heather o class she's you can see she's got a youtube clip of her and a van and if you go to the lensless podcast maybe episode under 20 <laughs> 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 uh, we we discussed her we did. Okay, we I'll had her check on check that out yeah so that um, cool. yeah so it's uh but these portraits that I just have to keep reminding myself that they are pinhole portraits. I mean, I, I love a pinhole portrait. Um, yeah. But, uh, wow.
3: Yeah. They're all pinhole. Um, some of them, some of them are actually a uh, Polaroid type 55, yep. which was my absolute favorite.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, Ansel Adams favorite as well.
3: Oh my God. It's like, You know, I've actually actually paid five hundred bucks for a box of uh, Polaroid Type fifty five before I went to Lesbos, Mm. and I got two sheet film sheets that weren't dry. All the rest were just just history. But I mean, it was and actually the um, one of the uh, Syrian refugee photos in on the website is actually with Type fifty five, but. But also, it was great, too, because I could shoot, take home the negative, and give the person I photographed the photo. And a lot of people, like in Lesbos, this is the only possession they really had. It's the only photograph they had of themselves, because they left absolutely everything in Syria. And so it was just so nice to be able to do that.
1: uh, I know you love the old polaroid film and i i I shot with six six expire 669 and stuff in pack cameras for a long time Mm. but uh, have you tried have you had any experiments with the new 55 4x5 have you
3: not at all i haven't used it yet um i've been kind of watching looking at listening to reviews yeah and um I mean, I don't know how they'd reproduce it, man, because, like, the grain on the Type 55 was just amazing. Yeah. And, uh, yeah.
1: If you want a good way to give people a print from your camera going forward, um, Lemography are launching a f- 4x5 back for a camera, for a 4 by 5 camera with a graph lock back on it, which takes in, uh, Instax wide. I know it's not new 55, but... You could put it on, you know, if you've got a graph lock type back on, on any of these cameras, you you know, you could still give a, a Polaroid, inverted commas, image to your, um, you know, your subjects. Yeah. Your, be exposure will be, that...
2: your exposure will be really short because I want to say Instax measures at 800 ASA. It's yeah, like so it's going to be short. Really time. fast. Yeah. Yeah. So you'll literally, with your hand, be going boop, boop, like, you know. <laughs>
3: yeah. uh, Which I've done before. Yeah, totally.
2: It'll be pretty zippy.
3: I like Zippy sometimes, but yeah, I'll, actually I'll look into that because it's, it's always been such a like a connective thing too, Yeah, you know?
1: I mean, you can take a Polaroid picture you, or an Instax using one of the Instax cameras, but it's not being made with your camera, is it? With your skull or with your, whatever it is you're using, you know? So yeah. You know, l- lomography are taking pre-orders at the moment. You know what they're like, these, this company, they, they get yeah. you to fund it for them. So I think that yeah. you can back it, you can not back it, but you can pre-order it for 10% off. I think even when it's on retail, it's like 130 pounds. So it's not a lot of money really for what it is, yeah. you know?
3: No, actually that would be, that would, That actually sounds really decent because yeah, I do miss that being able to not, because you know, when I'm in some, like if I'm in a war zone or something, yeah, I'm, people are used to still, even then, you know, seeing a photo on a cell phone or something. And, you know, I'm telling them that, you know, I'm shooting a photo, but they want to see it instantly still. Yeah. And so this would be great if I had something to, something to share.
1: Yeah, it's a great thing. Um, giving instant pictures to people, no matter what the situation is a joy. Um, mm-hmm. so I see you got involved in, with your Us and Them at Standing Rock with the, that was the pipe, Dakota Access Pipeline. Well, that was... Did you bump into Shane Balkovich at the same time with his
3: wet plate camera? I ran into somebody with a wet plate camera. Um, I don't remember the name. Yeah, it. It was kind how, of- many, how many people
0: are, that, are <laughs> likely to be there? Go there, back there and was- listen to the show about three or
1: four shows back, uh, Wayne. And listen okay. to, and so he, he photographed, I mean, he does photograph Native Americans now. He's, he's photographing a thousand of them in his wet plate studio. And he was on, he was down there because he befriended, you know, these guys and he was there and you, you must've been virtually next to him. Maybe not at the center. And then Greta Thunberg turned up as well. So he got that famous yeah. picture of her with his wet plate camera.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Now I know who you're talking about. Um, now it, it was weird. A lot of times when I go into places, uh, my main focus first is working with an NGO Or like when I'd go into Lesbos, I worked with an NGO. Um, I didn't pull out the camera for weeks. Um, You know, at first I was doing boat rescues, um, doing just whatever the NGO that needed me to do, you know, from food service to whatever. I feel that way. I really get to know the situation, the people, how everything works. I get to really connect with a subject rather than just being a photographer going in taking Mm -hmm. shots and leaving with your product basically yeah so when i went into standing rock it was kind of a weird thing i got a call from um the um press department of the camp it was um, called oshete media and they said are you here in Standing Rock? And I said, no. They said, well, there's rumors going around camp that there's this famous photographer who makes his own cameras, and he has a camera called Us and Them, and he's taking photos. And I said, well, I made a a, a camera called Us and Them, and and I said, but it's not me. I'm here. And he said, "Um, would you like to come? And so the next day, I loaded up my truck, and I was in Standing Rock. Um, you know, drove from Tucson, Arizona to North Dakota. And the first time I was there, just there for a couple of weeks, got to know people, just took like a couple photos. And then I um, kept in communication with um, a lot of the uh, people working at Standing Rock. And I went back um, and I was there for all of November and all of December, you know, when it was getting to like negative 12 degrees, you know, when it was just covered ice and snow. And, did a lot of my I think some of the best work then. Um, it was it was amazing. But you know it was what was neat is the media company knew that I was good with like being in Syria or Gaza or these different places, and so they had me do work for them, but like right on the front line, which was really kind of fun. Yeah, you got I got you kind of get to be between the you know, the. Uh, National Guard, the Sheriff's Department, and hired guns and then the water protectors, you know, just to document um, different actions of what was going on. And then at the same time, you know, then I would pull out my camera and, and do some work. And it was a pretty, it was an amazing experience, you know, just uh, just being there. And it and was kind of neat. My first photo shoot was uh, of Chief Arvel Looking Horse, who's the chief of the Sioux Nation. And uh, he's on the site, but just really sweet guy. And then um, one of my favorite photos was of a Navajo transgender woman. Um, and the photo I shot of her was during a Dapple Sheriff's Department battle at this uh, place called um, uh, Turtle Island that was right at the camp. And she was amazing, man. She spoke nothing but Navajo. Um, while she was there in camp and just a badass human and it was actually on Thanksgiving Day which makes it even more Mm -hmm. puts more into the story and actually if you look at the photos too something I didn't mention earlier is um, all the photos you see there's red writing on them Yep. I ask everybody to photograph or everybody I photograph to write something from their heart on a piece of paper. And just, it could be anything. Um, like the uh, woman, the Navajo woman at Standing Rock, she wrote a whole thing about how we need to protect our earth and take care of our earth. But what I do is when I get back, is I scan that piece of paper, I make a vinyl cutout of their actual writing. Um, I'll do the print the 48 by 60 inch print I poured two gallons of acrylic resin over the top of the print let it harden and then I put down those vinyl letters and then I put down more layers of acrylic resin over the top of that and then sand down the whole thing so everybody gets you a little bit of voice within their photograph
1: yeah the words words from the heart are becoming integral to the to the final image it's uh, very interesting
3: yeah so it's about them the only one i didn't do words on the heart with was i've gotten really close with the uh, zapatista rebels in mexico mm-hmm. and uh i did a photo of a, a subcomandante one of the uh, you know commanders and uh and it was amazing they set up like a couple hundred soldiers all lining the road and i did a portrait of him in the middle of the road and then I asked him for you know the words from the heart. He's like, I do not have time. And I'm like, okay, you're good. <laughs> I didn't how, I didn't pu- push the subject.
1: How do you get access to these guys then? Because I don't know much about them. I mean, I've heard of them, but I mean, they don't look like the sort of people that you just drive up to and say, hey, can I sort of hang around you?
3: Yeah. Well, the Zapatistas are uh, they are extremely supportive of art like a lot of their uh, like propaganda posters or different things that come out are, I mean, beautiful artwork. So they really treasure artists. Um, they don't really treasure photographers coming in and taking again, hmm. but they treasure art. So hmm. I have a friend who's connected with the Zapatistas. He contacted them. Um, they liked what I was doing and I'm still working with them today. Um, I was actually just sending them some of the portraits I shot and they're making huge vinyl um, banners that my portraits are going to be in the Zapatista rebel compounds and, and uh, you know, part of their communities in the Zapatista communities. Um, But yeah, it was, it's, it's been pretty amazing. Um, Actually, my last trip was incredible. I, I was part of a, probably about 150 vehicle Zapatista convoy through the jungles. And they let me ride in the point vehicle, which is in the back of a pickup truck. And it, it was just, it was incredible because you also like the radios are going off and we would stop. And I'm like, you don't really know what's going on. And it was just a lot of fun.
1: Isn't that the dangerous bit to be at the front? I don't think I'd want to be at the front.
3: Yeah, it was. <laughs> <laughs> Put the gringo in the front. <laughs> yeah. And you know, and behind me is like, you know, somebody that the Mexican military has wanted to knock off for quite some time. But uh, it was it was a, it was pretty incredible. But what was incredible though is we, we drove for a lot of the day, you know, through the jungles and then nighttime came and we're still going. And then we started slowing down and it was like 10 o'clock at night. All of a sudden I saw people in masks. Everybody has ski masks on the Zapatista mask. Hmm. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them all linking arms all along the side of the road. And they were there to greet us as we came into the uh, compound. But it was, it was like, I mean, it almost felt like that scene in um, Apocalypse Now, you know, where the boat goes in and everybody's in those, the little canoe boats you know as we're drifting into this camp and nobody said a word just hundreds and hundreds of people with linked arms wearing masks but uh, this is one of my favorite parts of photography is just being able to you know connect and engage and and you know be part of situations like that
2: and um, I, I can't sorry go on Eric was it you? I was saying, I was, yeah I was going to say do you ever find yourself you know, because the cameras that, that you make um, you know, they they can't sort of just be whipped out and shot like you know, you're driving on the back of a pickup truck in the in front of a convoy, you know, and, yeah. and the S and camera is not conducive to that, at least not very well, unless everybody stops. Do you ever find yourself longing for some kind of camera besides your phone? Because phones in those situations are dangerous, right? They have tracking chips, whatever. Yeah. That you can just whip out and take an image the way you would want to take an image, artistically, but much more quickly, right?
3: Yeah, no, I I've definitely thought about it. Um, I, actually, what I would love to do is, um, and I've talked to a friend who's actually connected with Leica. Um, I want a Leica monochrome, <laughs> um, which is the uh, you know the black and white. Uh, it's like twenty four megapixel Leica, and then because I've been told by different museums I work with, they want me to document, document, document. Yeah. They want me to document everything. And, you know, I have, you know, just like, I'll bring some stupid little camera along. But I would love to have the monochrome and then print out um, negatives, you know, like a uh, 12 inch by 20 or whatever size negative, And then do uh, platinum palladium prints of my documentation.
2: Yeah, totally doable. Digital negatives. Yeah, it's yeah digital negatives. Yeah, not a big deal. It,
3: but it's, it's what I would like to do. Um, for my documentation part, because yeah, you just can't whip out the cameras, but also my cameras too. It's like when I photograph, you know, I'm having a long conversations with the person I'm going to photograph, be even beforehand, you know, so it's like a collaboration with a person. It's not really just total documentary, you know, photographs, you know, mm-hmm. it's, it's connecting, sharing, creating something with somebody who's in some situation. And yeah, you know, that's the most documentation
1: Wayne, I can't um, I can't finish this section really without just asking you about the us and them camera because it um, it features quite heavily at the end of of um, Eric's journey when he when he comes to your um, diaper factory. <laughs> uh, and I was I'm immediately intrigued. I mean, the picture I'm looking at now is you with uh, some Zapatista rebels doing a portrait, and you've got your camera and the and the front. Is Open and there's that cross. So just tell yeah. our listeners about some of the things that go into this camera and
3: Why they're there? Yeah. Well, it's everything in the camera has to relate to the subject of us and them mm. um, And it, it's really weird when I start getting into a project and creating a project. I feel like things just start coming out of the woodwork um, Like the cross uh, there's a cross in the front of the camera. And if you look at the front of the cross, it looks a little odd because there's a two-headed eagle behind cross, behind Christ. And right behind Christ's head is a Maltese cross. And then if you flip open the door, you see the back of the cross. There's a gold, be- uh, gold bezel with a glass bead in it with an EB monogram. That was Ava Braun's personal crucifix. And it was just, <clears throat> excuse me, it was kind of like, to me, one of the ultimate symbols of us and them. You know, a lot of people see the crucifix who are Christian, they're like, "Yo, Jesus, yay. But there's always a story behind stories. And so this had a story of one of the ultimate, you know, us and thems in human history. And so that became the front of the cross, uh, or the camera there's on the sides of the camera, there are these little pyramids. I made it machined out of aluminum and with glass windows. Inside there are human body parts from a Vietnam vet. It was part of his kill proof box where he was required by his commanders to cut a body part off of everybody they killed. And what was amazing, what, what I found out about this through one of my, uh, one of the pe- people who are fans of my work. And she had uh, contacted me and she told me that her dad was a Vietnam vet and he had these items, but he felt kind of almost haunted by them. Well, you know, of course they are body parts of people he killed, but he didn't know what to do with them. He just couldn't throw them away. He couldn't go bury them because he felt responsible for these, these items. And so she talked to him about donating them to me. He said he would do it. And so they sent them to me. And then, um, you know, for the project, she explained the project to him about us and them. And so after I got it, I just couldn't work for a few days. You know, I felt this heaviness of them. And it was like a week. I just was like, I just can't do anything. You know, I just, I was useless for about a week. She told me that he finally slept through the night after he sent them to me and he finally had some peace and rest, um, after he shipped them to me. And then, so now those, you know, are part of the camera. And, um, and that also is just a, you know, such a nus and them, you know, that they train people to kill people and the people that they kill are so worthless that you take a trophy from them. And then, um, in the back of the camera is a glass chamber and all the glass that is in the glass chamber I found on rooftops in the Palestinian territories in the West Bank. I'd crawl up on people's rooftops and a lot of times there'd just be stuff thrown up on top of them. And so this is broken glass on Palestinian rooftops. And then on the inside of the the chamber, the glass chamber, there's a armband from World War II with the Star of David on it that Jews were required to wear. And it had a stamp from the Nazi party that they're a registered Jew. There's barbed wire that I picked up from Syria from the six day Israeli um, Syrian war or Arab war. There is leather from a, um, the grandson of um, Sitting Bull, great-grandson of Sitting Bull from his medicine bag that he gave me at Standing Rock. Um, there's a truck ID badge. That was the truck that burned between at Standing Rock between Dapple and the Water Protectors. It was the VIN tag from the truck that burned, and just a bunch of other artifacts that are in the back of the camera. But they all relate to the subject of us and them.
1: Yeah,
0: Simon.
3: Uh, it's- and I'm,
0: I'm just just listening along, and uh, I'm just looking at a photograph at the moment uh, that, that Wayne's there, and there's uh, some people on on the top of a hill. It actually reminds me of that uh, civil rights photograph, um, where. Um, but, but anyway, that, that's uh, that's another thing. But. Uh, I, 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 I've, I want to ask one question before we we, we start to wind down and uh, and and if we can find Eric, we might see about him, uh, answering the, answering the question. I don't, I don't know if he's here or not, but uh, um, and it, it's about the inspiration about how a camera comes about. And um, we were talking before we started recording uh, about a camera that you're going to make, and uh, and I'd, I'd like to like uh, perhaps you might want to talk a little bit about that. It's the uh, the camera that you're you're going to make for your your uh, girlfriend. Uh, oh yeah, and uh, mm. and and I think it'll go some way to explaining the process uh, that you have about. It's about why uh, a camera is made and how a camera is made. You have actually just touched upon that uh, with what we've just been talking about, but I think it will be good to talk about it in the, in the context of the thought process of making
3: a camera. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, this is going to be kind of interesting too, because uh, yeah, in 23 years, I've never made a camera, except for the very first one, the B camera, but I've never made a camera for anybody else. Yeah. Because it's all real personal um, journeys. Yeah, you know, it's all personal investigation to something I, I, I wish to learn about um, but my girlfriend her name is Alana Aratam she's a badass photographer she's digital though um, but she uh, she does these really personal projects a lot of it has to do with um, you know black history because um, she's black she um, you know, dives into different subjects. Um, and you can look up her website too. It's Alana Aritam. Last name is A-I-R-I-T-A-M.com. Uh, and um, she's going to be starting a new project that she's been doing research on. She found, uh, she had a show at Candela Gallery, which is in in Richmond, Virginia. And her parents were there. And with her parents, she went down to North Carolina to a plot of land that her um, relatives were enslaved on. They were slaves. And doing research, she's just found out so many really like interesting, interesting things. And actually what's kind of interesting too is like, her aunts still live on the land that their, you know, relatives were or ancestors were enslaved on because the slave owner ended up giving land to his children because he had children with the slaves. So in her research, um, she found that um, like her great-great-grandfather was the product of basically a rape of her mother because he was lighter skinned. And then he was a slave on the plantation. And then he started crossing the street over to another plantation and hooking up with a slave owner's daughter. And then they ran off to, I forgot which state it was, it was like Pennsylvania or something and got married. But I mean, so there's this whole entire story. But we're gonna be going back there because she wants to do a whole photo project on you know this whole story, this whole family history but i'm going to go with her and i'm going to we're going to be looking for artifacts in the actual slave cabins that are still standing and so we'll be taking some floorboards and taking some metal and taking whatever we could find around there and i'm going to come back with it and i'm going to make her an 8x10 camera from all these artifacts from the slave cabins and then she's going to go back and shoot eight by 10. And actually I want to talk to Eric about lenses because we actually, she wants to use a lens. I was just going to say, I'll make her a lens in a heart. <laughs> that would be super cool. Cause uh, uh, yeah, she's, she's a lens person and um, yeah. So I want to make an eight by 10 camera out of that. And I think it's just going to be an amazing, amazing project. So that'll be one of the newest cameras that I'll be working on
0: brilliant i like that a lens person which is pretty much almost everybody in photography
3: <laughs> and still i have never i've never really shot with a lens at all and uh but i mean after meeting eric and uh him you know with his dollar bill lenses you know i was like oh this is kind of interesting this maybe i could play with lenses at some point
0: actually but uh well yeah well Wayne, it's it's been it's not the end of the show yet, but uh, it uh, I think we'll we'll end this section of the show and it's it's just been absolutely fascinating uh, to to listen to um you know the, the, the processes, the thought processes that go into uh, why you why you make cameras and then what you do with them. Um so thank you really uh, for uh, spending that time with us.
3: Well, thank you guys for having me. Um, yeah, I, I heard Eric's show. I was like, "Yeah, you guys are cool. This will be fun." <laughs> and actually, I just wanted to do it so I could hear Eric read the emails
0: <laughs> Exactly, and, and Eric, Eric uh, um, he, he well, I've already said just how well he did the emails last 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 time. So, uh, yeah, so oh, that's ex- that we we. Ha- <laughs> <laughs> and his um, very iffy, iffy pronunciation of uh, British swear words. Um, <laughs> um, so I think that's it's probably a, a good time um, to do uh, to, to do those emails with Eric. This is the Ask Eric section. Because uh, so we did put a, we, we put something out there to say, uh, Eric's going to uh, read emails out and, uh, and and answer them as as, as well. And uh, uh, two emails have flooded in. Um, Two, yeah, and I think there might be something else that um, that Andrew's pushed your way as well. I, I don't know. Yeah, there was something on
1: uh, in, on Messenger, wasn't it, which I sent you, Eric, about carbon printing. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Hold well, on, me. Grab... Uh, that was on Facebook Messenger, right? It was. Yeah, okay, yeah. It was. Uh, it was kind of an email, but it came on a message. It came so, through a message. A message.
2: Method.
1: So, if you can find that, you can read that. one Yeah,
2: out. Yeah, 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 for sure. Hold on. We have this long-going thread. No, that's the one with Wayne. Um,
1: yeah, it's on the Simon and Eric thread.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Simon and, and Eric. And me, I must be Eric. in there as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah. We should... Not no, Wayne. We're not going to do uh, a theme song.
1: Um, <laughs> on the 9th be, of October, I forwarded it to you. All On right, scrolling, well,
2: scrolling. Back scrolling. It's great radio. <laughs> it is. Uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. We've, 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 oh, we've, Jim's Carbon Art, this that's guy. It, yeah. Yeah. yeah, baby. Um They're really beautiful. I get excited about these things. Um well we can start with the emails, because actually the first email. Hey everybody, it's Eric. It's it's the it's the ask Eric and everybody else section because Wayne, feel free to I'm mean, actually I'm yeah. gonna pull one of these is actually uh pulls right into you and your favorite mode of my favorite mode of transportation, which is two wheels. Which translates to your favorite mode of transportation, which is two wheels. But two wheels. Yeah. yeah, yeah, all about two wheels. Um, but we'll get there. The, the first one actually uh, tails into a comment that came in the large format photography podcast section where we were gently corrected um, slash, uh, yeah, mostly just corrected about diffraction um, by a gentleman named Nick Lyle. Nick. How are you, man? So Nick wrote in. He's not a um, gentleman, I mean, by the way. He's not. Well, no. okay.
0: And, um. and, not, and, not, and not only that, <laughs> I think this is a, a, a good point to say that uh, Nick Nick is one of the members of the Homemade Camera Podcast, ah. along with uh, Graham Young and Ethan Moses. And I was chatting to Ethan Moses um, a few days ago, and uh, and I, I, I had to go. Ethan, Ethan, I've got I've got to go. And he goes, No, 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 you can't go. And I goes, I, I, how do you mean? I've got a question. I goes, okay. Uh, how 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 on earth did you get did you get Wayne to agree to come on the show? I've been trying for ages. <laughs> you know, he, was, he was almost in tears. We, we've been trying so hard to get Wayne, and we can't get Wayne. And then you've just got him, you know. So um, so if you if there are any um, look at your spam uh, section way. <laughs> Yeah,
3: uh, I'll take a look. Yeah. That, sorry. A... Sorry. Ethan. <laughs> yeah. Look
1: for increasingly pleading emails from, uh, the homemade yeah. camera podcast. So that's good.
2: I,
3: I'll, yeah. I'll, check my, I'll check my spam. Yeah.
2: Well, uh, you know, you know how you got him. You knew me. So. Yep. Yeah. Uh-huh. And Wayne was crazy enough to answer my emails. I don't know why still to this
3: day, but, hey, so, but we had fun.
2: We had a lot of fun, dude. So <laughs> yeah. much fun. I, I'm I, and we're, we'll get to the, we'll, Nick, we will get to your email. I swear, um, <laughs> I do actually. I'm kicking myself because I haven't gotten back to Phoenix or Tucson since that trip, and I'm dying to, just dying to. Um, so, quickly, gentlemen, what what title? What should I? What superlative should I use for Nick? He's not a gentleman. You have opinions. What is he? Podcast, I'm put you on the spot.
0: podcast host. Let's go with that. Okay. Actually, so actually, I have a- actually. I was going to say for Wayne's benefit, is also a sculptor as well. Uh, mm-hmm. So uh, mm. yeah, he's, right. he's going to be all over the show just lis- listening to. It, I tell you, so you've you've got to so, go, you've got to go on their show sometime. As much as anything, I mean, we've we've talked about obviously the a lot about the artistic side, but they they so want to drill down into
2: what you do and the, and the processes and things like that. So uh, okay, so, yeah. so we have we have an email from uh, from sculptor and esteemed, well known, <clears throat> renowned podcast host Nick Lyle. Nick writes, yes, a great segment, though I must protest the rule of thumb about aperture and diffraction. Diffraction is not linked to F number except within a particular format. The larger the format, the, quote, smaller, and quote, an aperture you can use without diffraction based on F numbers. Diffraction is a matter of physics and is linked to the actual size of the aperture. For 4x5, the diffraction is cut-off results in a much larger F number, and therefore a smaller size diffraction-free aperture than a 135 format. You can only get to F8 with no diffraction problem in 135 format, but 4x5 lenses don't see diffraction as a problem until you get to at least F32 or maybe F64 because the apertures are physically larger at a given F number. Smiley face... Nick Lyle, <laughs> but then isn't that what we said? It, it, it is. It mostly is. Um, and I actually I, yeah. I have a, a link. Yeah. Um, it, and that made me that in the longer conversation we had, I believe with Nick and some others in the in the large format photography podcast, LFFP. I'm trying to find a good <laughs> an acronym to use for that. Um, made me do a little bit of research into lens diffraction and photography from a more technical side. Uh, It is a bit of a bit of interest to me as somebody who, you know, cobbles together lenses and messes around with things. Um, And so it's pretty cool, actually. Um, Besides diffraction, there's diffraction patterns, which sort of I will tongue in cheek call bokeh, right? Which is the shape of the light and the patterns that that diffraction makes, Um, which, you know, if you've seen um say the the Leica Lomography pet'sville lenses and they have different shaped aperture drop-ins you know a star or a circle or whatever to kind of tune the shape of that diffraction in the background of the portrait Right, And so it seems to me like a really interesting place where a lunatic like myself might be able to actually play with diffraction to form very specific patterns and types of diffractions at very specific apertures. Um, so I have a couple links I'll throw into the Facebook group about a little more of the technical background of diffraction, and we can get some conversations going. Uh, so thanks, Nick, for throwing us that. It's made me look at this a little bit deeper. And it's actually... A really really cool diffraction. The, the 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 size of the diffraction um the is driven by the size of the aperture opening and that is absolutely different it's it, it's run off the circle of confusion basically um which you know wayne's like i'm not a title photographer eric s-t-f-u um but also wayne for you it could also play into like your pinholes and the shape of your pinholes right oh yeah And how rough they are or smooth they are gets a different look and feel for those edges of your image and therefore the diffraction. Right? So you. Which I enjoy when I play with. Right. Like you could actually put your stuff under a microscope and tune your pinholes for a very specific look and feel.
3: Yeah. I have one pinhole that is, um, it's pretty amazing under a microscope. It's actually two microns. Oh, that camera, dude. The eight by ten, yeah. yeah. Eight yeah. by ten X-ray camera. Yeah. yeah. Yep, yep. That's a yep. whole other story that we're yeah we won't get into the
2: uranium and the uh, the radioactive comet chunk that you I almost touched.
3: Yeah. Yeah. The uh, the uh, green glass from the first mm-hmm. nuclear detonation.
2: Yep. Yeah. yeah. Night. Sorry, guys, you're out of time. We're not going to be able to. Talk <laughs> that <at> that <laughs> you just have to have them on for like round two sometime next year. Um, <laughs> And the second email is from Ben Reynolds, who, uh, since I don't know Ben, I'm just going to say a gentleman named Ben Reynolds. I'll Mm -hmm. make the assumption that Ben is a gent. And Ben writes, hi, Eric, and you other two. I have a question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Who let Eric on for this show? He seems to be taking over. (laughs) I have a question around your combined cycling and large format photography adventures. I am also a cyclist and a photographer. I've done a bit of bike packing and I'm always nervous about carrying my camera gear. What do you take with you on your tours and how do you carry everything securely? On your back or strapped to the bike? Wishing you good light and a fair tailwind always. Seattle for now, Ben R. Hey Ben, and this is where I'm going to loop Wayne in a little bit because uh, road tripping on motorcycles, you have a lot of the same constraints, uh, maybe even more constraints than you do on a bicycle because we have a lot of mounting places on bicycles for gear that that don't yeah. really exist on a motorcycle. Um, so, on my end, I carry nothing on my back. Uh, when I first started bike packing, it was uh, it was attempting to do. I went from zero to 5 million pretty much. And I attempted to do a bicycle race called the tour divide. It is a self-supported mountain bike race from Banff, Canada to the U S Mexico border down the continental divide. Um, it's a race. It has rules. You do it solo. You don't accept help from anybody. You don't, uh, you don't draft with anybody. Um, you have a GPS tracker to make sure you don't cheat. And it's, it's really intense uh, to put it lightly, it's two thousand seven hundred and fifty miles, um, and I did it on a single speed because <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm I'm not very bright, really, is what it comes down <laughs> to. So, um, with that, Wait, do my, they have a
3: separate category? Or? yeah,
2: yeah, yeah uh, oh, they that's do. Cool. Yeah, um, and so with that in mind, like you go really light, right? And so my camping gear, you carry all your camping gear with you. You carry your food with you. Um, got very light very quickly, and I learned also very quickly how terrible it is to spend all day or multiple days with with stuff on your back. Right, it just it sucks, really, tremendously to have something on your back. Um, so with that in mind, um, you know I have this background in, in very light gear. You know, right now I sort of run a luxuriously roomy one-slash-two-person tents that weighs two pounds. Uh, my race setup, I carry an eight-ounce bivy, Right. Um, but all of my camping gear and touring gear, including stove, everything, tents, sleeping pad, uh, is less than 13 pounds. Uh, ultra, ultra-light, very packable, which leaves me a lot of room when I started the carrying large format gear, a lot of room to pack large format gear. Um, but even with that, you know, like my future trips, I'm trying to go lighter, you know, the, the Butterfield trip with the speed graphic, you know, the speed graphic is a brick of a camera. It's, you know, good five, six pounds. Like the camera alone weighed half as much as my camping gear. And then you add 14 to 24 by five film holders and, and, and things get really heavy, really quickly. Um, So the places I I carry large format gear securely, Um, on Route 66, it was in a saddlebag, the bottom left saddlebag for the travel wide. Um, For the Butterfield trip, I got a front rack, a flat rack, that mounts to the fork uh, with a bag that I could flip open easily and quickly to gain access to the speed graphic, Um, the lens, which I lost, of course. Um, the film holder that I was working with at that moment, two or three film holders that I was working with that moment that were loaded, uh, at a small Fuji digital. Um, and that also kept it safe. The other problem with carrying camera equipment, and saddlebags on a, f- is if you crash and you go to that side, the camera takes the impact and that sucks <laughs> a lot. Right. Um, so, that location of that front rack on the front of the fork, the front of the bike, is fairly impact free if you tip over, uh, which is super important with large format equipment. If I was going to give advice on what kind of a large format equipment to carry nowadays, um, for somebody who isn't impeded by needing to use, you know, shutterless lenses like Wayne and I, um, <laughs> I would go with something like, um, Oh, what am I thinking of? An Intrepid four by five, because they're really light and really affordable, and well built, and they pack down to the size of a book. You know, uh, an Intrepid four by five with a couple of lenses and some film holders will fit very nicely and very lightly into a fr- into a bag. Um, but for you, like Wayne, when you're out on a motorcycle and you're road tripping on a motorcycle with your with your cameras and like all of like the Polaroid equipment and whatnot, like where do you pack your stuff, man?
3: um a lot of the stuff goes on the handlebars uh because i have a what i ride is like an old school chopper
2: mm-hmm.
3: um you know it's rigid framed it's uh suicide shift yeah you know, so it's there, you can't really put any kind of panniers or anything on the back and it doesn't have a sissy bar so you can't put anything in the back but i have big ape hangers you know the where you know you see the guys riding with their hands way up in the air that's mm-hmm. that's what i got on the bike So I strap a lot down to that. So the tripod fits really nicely right underneath the uh, headlight, you know, and and, uh, latched down. And then I have a bed bed roll that has a sleeping pad, um, like an inflatable pad, in the middle of it. And then I have another bag that acts as almost like a windscreen that has all the rest of my gear, uh, that has the camera, that has. uh, my clothing, you know, which, you know, I'm a biker, you know, I just need one shirt, one pair of underwear and one pair of pants. Yeah. So, you know, I don't bring much as far as clothing, but I got to have my stove for my coffee. You know, that's oh, yeah, that's a necessity. Dude, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, that's about it. I could keep it really, really light and just not worry about stinking. <laughs> and, uh, and it all works out.
2: Dude, I'm with you on the stinking, you know, riding a bicycle uh, 85 miles a day is stinky but
3: yeah and and i'm a biker so you know what do you expect when you see a biker but stink right so it it all works out (laughs) but with a rigid
2: and for those of you who don't really know motorcycles a rigid is a motorcycle that doesn't have any rear suspension at all like there's no rear shock it's just a frame and a pair of forks so um with a rigid though do you ever have any problems with like vibration messing up i mean your cameras may not maybe less but like any any issue with vibration because i always worry about vibration messing with my camera gear
3: yeah but i mean the cameras i'm making are you know they're machined out of billet forged aircraft aluminum right. i even had a i was at a, uh, I had a show in los angeles and they put one of my cameras on a pedestal and someone backed into it and it went flying across the room and, you know, and of course the other gallery owner is just like panicked and everybody's panicked. And I just picked it up and put it back on the pedestal <laughs> because it doesn't matter. It's going to be fine. You know, it's going to right. shoot. It's
2: so not even like the decorative pieces or the smaller, like filigree pieces that are, that are you not worried about any of those too much? Uh,
3: not really. I mean, the function is going to work if I break something. Um, right. Yeah, you know, I'll just go home and machine it after the shoot. Right, so it doesn't really matter. I, I, I had a kind of an interesting thing with. Uh, there's a camera in the collection. It's called um, Modern Industry Project. It's on the website. It's a huge eight by ten camera. The thing weighs like about forty five pounds. You know, it's a monster. And I was setting it up, and there was. Do you guys know who Nathan Lyons is? Oh yeah, um, yeah. Nathan was a good buddy of mine. He passed away. No Oh yeah, He he was a big fan of my work and he had me um, he did a lot for me in the photo world. So Nathan I went to New York with a new camera he wanted to see it so I was going to do a show um, a photo shoot in the George Eastman house Mm
2: -hmm.
3: and so they closed the George Eastman house for me and I'm doing this photo shoot with this brand new camera. Nathan Lyons gave me his tripod which was this old wood tripod and it had Edward Weston's head on it. And so I'm like, oh, that's really amazing. You know, this piece of history yeah. I get to use for the photo shoots. And the bolt to attach the foot on the head was made out of brass. And I'm like, oh, I'm not real comfortable with that. It ended up breaking. And the whole camera flew onto concrete and dented the shit out of one corner of the uh, camera. And But it still worked. We did the shoot. And I was going to go, you know, I, I take it home and I'm a machine it. Nathan Lyons and the museum director was like, no, don't touch it. It's part of the history of the camera. Yeah. So now it's mm. like, you know, if something happens to the camera, you know, I'm like, yeah, I'm, it's part of the history of the camera. Yeah, you know, just right. leave it. But I felt so bad I broke Edward Weston's head. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, but Wayne, uh, I've, um, there's actually three people who like two wheels on the show as well. I used to ride motorbikes. And uh, mm-hmm. although uh, fast Japanese ones, unfortunately, but there you go. Um, but I'm just looking at your at your chopper here, and yeah. what immediately caught my eye is the fact that you know you're talking, you know, you've got those you know, really high handlebars there. But the fact is, there were there were there are no levers on on there. Yeah, you know, it's just yeah. It, you know, it's it, if it was a bicycle, it will be a bicycle without brakes, and <laughs> um, and it's it just it's just hurting my head uh, just looking at it. And I was thinking, hold on, hold on. It looks like there's no front brake on that bike. Is that is that correct?
3: Yeah, I, I put a front brake on it recently because it's just a little bit easier. Um, the what's it? What's different about the bike? Well, for one thing, it has a monster motor. Um, that's a 124-cubic-inch motor, which comes out to 2,100 cc's. <laughs> so it's like this monster drag racing motor. It has an open primary, which is belt-driven on the side, so it has an open belt that you know connects the, the uh, transmission. But what you do, you your brake is the right foot. Mm. Your clutch is the left foot right so you clutch it with your left foot then you reach underneath your butt and there's a vintage doorknob you know crystal doorknob that is the shifter <laughs> wow that's so cool and it's it's a little different it, the bike doesn't even have a key, <laughs> key because nobody knows how to ride it <laughs> so or wants to you know a 2,000 2,100 cc motorcycle with a suicide shift you know, is, uh, you don't need a key for
1: that. But. So, so I, I, I'm not looking at a picture, but I, I watched far too many episodes of uh, Sons of Anarchy. And some of those guys rode those bikes with their arms just like, at, you know, 60 degrees up in the air, holding onto these uh, yeah. ridiculous handlebars. And I thought, well, did the blood not just drain away from your fingers and you get pins and needles or something? I mean, how practical is that?
3: It's not real practical. It, it's kind of like <laughs> no. an old, it's like an old school chopper thing, you know, like an old school biker thing from yeah, you know, mm. Southern California. But w- it originally came from. So the story goes is the handlebars were that high because biker gangs were knocking each other off, and one of the re- ways they were doing it is putting a thin um, metal cord across a street next to a clubhouse. So it was basically um, clotheslining by other bikers Hmm. so the handlebars were steel up in front of you
1: stop your head being
3: chopped off yeah so you wouldn't get decapitated yeah wow okay so it's like it's 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 old um you know traditional kind of thing (laughs) and bikers like tradition okay a fair bit yeah
1: Eric, you're going to read that um, message? Yeah, email, absolutely. No, yeah, <laughs> for sure. I just, I just wanted to swing into the motorcycle stuff. Yeah, it's it good, but well, we've know, done bikes now. Go on, read exactly. it. All All right, right. related
0: email. <laughs> I just, okay, I, and so, I, actually, I've just got to say, uh, Gra- if Graham Jago's made it this far the Sunday 16 podcast, it, it'll be, it would have been, he would have appreciated that as well, was he? Likes well,
1: you have to tell him he's got to get over two hours into the show before he hears about <laughs> motorbikes.
2: So I don't know who this is from because it came through a copy paste through messenger. Do you gentlemen know who this message is from? Like carbon printing? Can you tell me? I want to give credit where credit's due. Yeah, just read it out and I'll, I'll try and find out. All right. For you. All right, all right. From an unnamed gentle person uh, who shall be hopefully shortly identified. Loving your podcast, not only because the guests are great, but I really enjoy you and Simon. You being Simon Andrew, not Eric. I know you must have a very long list of potential guests, but I would like to give you the name of a photographer I think you would enjoy talking to. He is somewhat of a curmudgeon. Yes, he shoots ULF 14x17, 8x20, and 8x10 and builds his own cameras. But the thing that makes him unique is he prints using carbon transfer. His prints are gorgeous. I don't think you have had anyone who does carbon printing. Here's his website. HTTPS colon double slash com. Make sure you check out his books that are carbon print. His books are carbon printed. Damn son. So th- sorry, I added commentary on there because I can't help myself. Um, so the, I personally, I would love to hear, uh, Jim. What is Jim's full name? Jim Fitzgerald. Actually, I just went to his website. Um, I can't call him Jim's carbon printing because that would be rude. Uh, but Jim Fitzgerald, uh, you should go to his website. His cameras are—he makes really big, old school, like eighteen hundreds or nineteen hundreds-looking cameras. Uh, and carbon transfer printing is is really really neat. If have you have either of you ever done or, or three of you are sorry Wayne uh, seen or done carbon prints? No, nope. no,
3: I, they are. I mean Wayne, you
2: you'd love them. Because no, I, I
3: I've seen them. Um, there's a uh, Nick what's his name nick brandwith uh yes yep. at um, eastman house um because yeah. i was working with the eastman house a bit and uh nick took me down and he was working on some carbon and it was just i mean the the it was gorgeous
2: yeah the detail was, in a carbon print is ridiculous
3: yeah i would love but you know it's like one of those things is like do i really want to investigate this much when i'm shooting pinhole when it's soft anyways because the detail was incredible
2: right but, well you know, it's, it's
3: something i would play with
2: but. yeah for sure and it's interesting because like the it's, it's it's as i recall i want to say they. it takes like four or five days depending on how much time you have uh and concentration i guess to actually produce a really good carbon print if you're yeah. if you're feeling fussy about it and they get almost a uh, a three-dimensional layered look right because you're layering
3: on carbon and
2: uh, yeah. they're really they're stunning yeah right
3: um, yeah, no, yeah, yeah. I want to. I, I wrote uh, Jim Fitzgerald's name down. I want to check that out.
2: And I'm, I'm sure there will be a link in the Facebook. No it was. I still can't work out who sent that message. I do apologize <laughs> if you're listening. Uh, if you're listening, um, let us know, and I will give you credit next time.
1: Yeah, I, I, I don't even. I must have got it via Facebook Messenger and forwarded it to you. But I get, I've got so many messages in here. I can't it's, work.
2: Oh, it. oh, the the popularity. It must be just yeah. draining on you. <laughs> it is. Well, everybody who asked to join
1: the Lenses, not Lenses, what is it, Large Format Photography Podcast Group, I do message them all back once they've um, answered the intro question. I do message them all back and says, welcome, would you like to post an introduction about yourself? So I've got all these people, you know, who I've messaged to say, introduce yourself. So, ah. so, so whoever it was, I'm really sorry, but we did at least read it out. And I looked into carbon printing, um, I think probably prompted by that email. Email, thinking it was um, something I could easily do, but I, I thought, no, that's far too tiny. I've made salt prints from uh, eight by ten uh, pinhole negatives, and that's kind of interesting,
2: you know. Mm-hmm. Nice
1: salt printing. Yeah. Have you ever
2: have you ever done salt print uh, paper negatives, as in shooting like those in the camera? Because there's this great book called um, uh, Primitive Photography that yeah. uh, Wayne, you should also unquestionably, if you don't have it, grab, I'll send you a link. This guy, this guy made it and he made it from a standpoint of, you know, digital photography is coming this, you know, like the nineties, right. Um, Digital photography is coming and someday there may not be any commercially available film or cameras or lenses in that case, what do I do? And so he made this great book um, that has designs like camera designs Lens designs, like how you make these old, like eighteen hundreds, early nineteen hundreds lenses, and also how do you make your own paper negatives? Hmm. Like everything you need, um, and it's really cool. Uh, I don't have my own darkroom, so I don't really have the ability to do that. But it's it's pretty rad. And, a lot of people shoot.
1: Gonna... Uh, a lot of people shoot a direct yeah. positive paper in their pinhole cameras. Mm-hmm. Is that something you've ever played with, Wayne?
3: Um, a little bit but um i know i do so much stuff um <laughs> in the dark room that, yeah yeah what's funny yeah. eric oh just like i just
2: when I mean, you said i just do so much stuff <laughs> i did the laugh I'm like yes my friend yes you do <laughs> 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 that that would be an understatement no i mean like me
3: in the dark room though i mean as far as you know just screwing with chemicals screwing with different things that, yeah it's like yeah i've not really played much with it right well
2: uh, I'll send you a link to that book because uh, you might find some of the lens designs and um, some of the other stuff kind of interesting.
3: Yeah, I'd love to check it out. All right, man.
2: Done and Dustin.
0: Okay, so mm. is that is that the Ask Eric segment over then, is that? Hmm. Yep, we do Yep. Okay. All yeah, right. I didn't swear once. No, no, actually... actually Bollocks. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Um, <yeah. laughs> It did a a better job than you do with that as well, I've got to say, Eric. Um, (laughs) Oh, um, bollocks. No, no, still not doing it. Still talking about a cow. Um, um, (laughs) Right. um, Okay, let's. I start to wind things down and uh uh, i want to uh say thank you to those people that have donated to us but actually since um eric has joined the show nobody has actually donated anything Uh, (laughs) i don't know if that's coincidental or a message Uh, Uh, thanks eric uh, but (laughs) yeah yeah so um if anybody does want to help us out on the show um you can donate to us at uh, coffee.com that's k o - f i.com and somehow find our page because apparently it's notoriously difficult to find us um but there you go we are there um so there's that um let's let's do some shout outs before we uh, do contact details and things like that and uh andrew have you got any shout outs this week no <laughs> okay <laughs>
3: um
2: eric have you got a shout out um well i would definitely like to shout out wayne for accepting this one my crazy invitation two years ago almost exactly two years ago and then the crazy invitation like three weeks ago or two weeks ago whenever that was uh and just coming on to be a great guest and then andrew and simon for whatever reason for going your coffee donations uh, to have me on to answer emails thank you It's, it's an absolute blast and an honor. Uh, it's, it's it's great to have you with us. And
0: uh, um, uh, shout outs for me. I've completely forgotten. Um, I would like to say something good about the six times dark room in Stoke-on-Trent, where we can enlarge anything up to seven by five, uh, which is which is great. Except Stoke-on-Trent has just gone into the um, second tier of um, lockdown restrictions and things like that uh, which now means that you can't mix in you can't mix households uh, basically um it gets more complicated than that but that's that's the gist of it you can you can meet outside if you if you if there are six of you and no more uh, but it does mean that we can't uh, well we've got to just close the dark room again which is a, a real shame so uh, hopefully uh things will improve that we can open that up again um but there you go so no six towns dark room for a while um so yeah so that so that that's sort of my shout out to say that don't go um, Ooh, i've thought of two people well in fact
1: i wrote their names down sorry simon okay. um, i'd already mentioned heather heather o class i'll put a note in the show notes with her little miss sunshine fan so that's kind of and then the person we didn't mention who um just kept springing to mind was brendan barry who we've had on Hmm. the show and uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Brendan Barry Wayne no there you go it's another name for you to look up he he does all kinds of really interesting things with pinhole cameras and
0: uh, and, anyway, che- he was- and cheese and skyscrapers and cheese, yeah <laughs> and
1: skyscrapers uh, wrote it down all, all sorts yeah he, again he's, he's in our back catalogue you know of superstars
0: yeah along with uh, Sam Heiser uh, because we but yes
1: just, yeah. new 55 yes yeah, Sam Heiser of new 55 he came on the show as well
0: oh
1: really or famous formats as he's called now isn't it yeah, yeah. famous formats has taken over the new 55 film production and sale
0: there are, there are there are so many people that have been on this show that are now famous uh, such mm. as Clyde Butcher
1: Yeah, Clyde Butcher, who shoots with a Leica monochrome monochrome thing. Oh, really? He does. Yeah,
3: I'm so fascinated by that. I I know I'm a little upset. Well, also, I like Leica because they're just like bricks. They are. You know, there's just a solid. The one camera I did have, I had a Leica M3 um, that I used to just take all over the place. And it was just – it was a brick. And then I donated it to a friend for an auction for a photo project he was doing. But – Anyways, sorry, I got sidetracked. No,
0: that's okay. Well, um, I'm now coming to you, uh, Wayne, uh, to see if you've got any shout-outs you want to give.
3: Shout-outs? Um, yeah, thank you, guys. This was a lot of fun. Um, so, yeah, thank both you guys and Eric, too, I guess. Um, <laughs> <laughs> eh. <laughs> um, no, but it was a lot of fun. So thank you guys very much. Um, uh, like I said, shout out to my girlfriend. Like I said, check out her photography; it's pretty badass, Alana Aratam. Um, and I think that's about it.
0: Okay. Well, we'll um, we'll do a a. This is a, probably a very good time to uh, remind people how they can get to see the work that you that you do, Wayne. So, what are the best places to see what you do?
3: Um, online right now with my website, which um, should be up most places. I had a little bit of an issue with changing servers. It's WayneMartinBelger.com. That's B-E-L-G-E-R. Um, I might we're kind of working out, I might have an exhibition, um, some piece in um, Richmond, Virginia, at a gallery called Candela in um, January, and. All the rest of my shows and stuff are kind of up in the air because I was supposed to have three shows this year, and everything got canceled because of COVID. Um, and also, I might have some really cool, big-ass news coming down the line. Um, big-ass news. Do you guys have that in England? Big-ass news. We do now. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, good. Yeah.
2: It just left over the pond.
3: Yeah. So a little birdie. Um, I was told I'm. I'm. Uh, being nominated for Smithsonian Fellowship, why? Wow. Um, by the Smithsonian, and uh, so I might be doing a huge project, um, a uh, making a brand new camera uh, for a project in with a Smithsonian. So that cool. Congratulations, well done. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. I was supposed to get notification today, but I haven't seen it yet. I keep on while we're talking, I'm checking my email every like 20 <laughs> seconds. This goes this goes out tomorrow. Uh. yeah. <laughs> oh good. So yeah.
2: well, I hope it happens now. I haven't built it up so much. Yeah, exactly,
3: yeah. Right. Yeah, just edit out that part if I get a um, should we sorry. should we just
2: get you back on just to hear you scream and shout that you got it? <laughs> and we can tack that onto the, I'll, the
3: call. I'll be screaming and shouting.
2: Yeah. All right. All right. <laughs>
3: but uh, yeah and this project is going to be badass man it's 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 i wish we had more time because uh, it's it's going to be i think my life's work actually
0: well we were, we were talking about other things that you've been up to as well and i think it's fair to say as in you know, before we were recording um which are incredibly interesting um so yeah you will return i've got no doubt about that
3: i'd still love alive. To. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, man. Yeah, yeah.
0: Um, and uh, and this this uh, this this sort of actually brings brings to an end the trilogy of shows plus one uh, that started off with Jenny Sampson. Um, mm. where, <laughs> just Jenny Jenny yeah. led us to Eric, and Eric has led us to Wayne. And uh, six
1: degrees of separation. Where are you going to lead us to, Wayne? Who are we going to get on next? Ah, uh, just you wait.
3: <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's been absolutely a great series of, uh, of, uh, of chats that we've, we've had there. So, um, so again, uh, thank you very, very much, Wayne, for, uh, for, for being with us.
3: Uh, hey, like I said, thank you, guys. This was a blast. I'm glad, uh, glad we got this time. Cool. Uh,
0: Andrew, um, so mm. outside of uh, this, this podcast, uh, how can people catch up with the things that you do? They can catch up with me on Twitter
1: as uh, at WarboysSnapper, and in the Facebook group, both for Large format Photography Podcast Facebook group and the Lensless Facebook group. And then I'm in Instagram as WarboysSnapper
0: as well. And uh, if people want to get in touch with the show and ask questions of Eric, mm. what's the best way of doing that? They should email us, Simon. Oh yeah, and uh, what's our email address? large
1: format photography podcast at gmail.com you sound like you've had practice on that it's only taken 39 shows exactly. that's a good one
0: yeah well done
1: well done. yeah so let's um come on we if you want Eric back um, you need to send emails in <laughs>
2: <laughs> well
1: no pressure
2: yeah way, I want to he, be might,
1: back he might just be here deals. he might just be here all the time
0: we who knows <laughs> oh um, yeah, um, uh, we have a we have an Instagram account, don't we? Do we? Yeah, we do. We it's it's a, we have Ooh, a half, okay okay. Let's put it the other way. We have a half. Well, yeah, we have a half asked Instagram account, mm-hmm. which is largely because that's my fault, and I don't. I'm not really that good at uh, Instagram. So, uh, but we are there, and we put things out on it occasionally. So, uh, so that's it. We're we're hip and we're happening. And you just mentioned there, uh, Flickr. Yes, we have a Flickr mm. thing, don't we? Yep. And we're that's run by Colin. Colin. Colin De- Devereaux. That's Devereux. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's that's his name, and that's how you say it. he um, made that very, very clear, if I remember, a few weeks ago. Um, yeah, So, so there's that. Um, Eric, how about you? Yes.
2: What do What do you do when you're not here? I don't know. This is <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure. It's all just a blur between podcasts now. I'm not. I'm not sure, but. Um, I do occasionally, you know, post images and and projects and cameras in progress on Instagram at Eric H Matthew, uh E R I K H M A T H Y.
0: Okay, okay. Well, uh, myself, or am I? I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic, which is also the name of my website. Uh, you just need to stick uh, .co.uk. On the end of there, and I have this ever-growing uh, empire of lens caps that I'm making with 3D printers and things, and I'm uh, I'm getting close. I keep on saying this every week about making front lens caps. Well, I actually started to do some front lens caps, and I've got some TLR lens caps. I'm making custom ones. So if uh, if anybody's got an odd-sized um, <laughs> aperture. Uh, <laughs> uh lens uh they need to have have covered um then get in touch with me um <laughs> yes uh, no comment yeah the cap for every hole yes i i can <laughs> oh god uh, wow this one's south <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah yeah just the guys those tlr ones are covered too um and um and uh, yeah so anyway so you can get hold of me um by going on to that site i've got an ebay site as well uh, called it's fozzy but uh, um, most of the stuff's on, the, on, my, on my website as well. Um, yeah, we're on Flickr. I'm on Flickr, sort of. And I, I think that's just about it. Our music is by Kevin McLeod of Incompetech.com, and it's called Two Finger Johnny. Um, and, yeah, that's that's pretty much it. So I hope you've enjoyed this week's show, and uh, we'll be back again soon. So goodbye. Bye. Take care, Bye. all. Bye. <laughs>